The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Non-emergency podcast. Carmelo Anthony is not that good, so we waited one day to do this pod. But here we are. He is finally. The melodrama part two is over. He's been traded to Oklahoma City, not where we thought he was trying to go. He was trying to go to Houston. That didn't work out for him. They didn't have the pieces to make it work. Danny going to join us here. Then we're going to, he and I are going to talk about the Pacers preview. And then I'm going to have Spencer Percy from Queen City Hoops on to discuss the Charlotte Hornets. But so we have it here, Danny. Uh, what exactly was the trade? So the trade was Carmelo Anthony waiving his no trade and actually waiving his trade bonus for Ennis Canner, Doug McDermott, and the Chicago Bulls 2018 second round pick, which the Thunder acquired in the trade that brought in Doug McDermott and that sent out Cameron Payne. And Taj Gibson as well. And Taj Gibson. You'll recall. Uh, So yeah, this trade now, let's talk about it from the Knicks perspective first, because I think for them, they had really wanted to get something back from Carmelo that was going to help them. And it's instructive here to give you what the salaries for these players are. Carmelo do 26 million this year, 28 million next season. And then Cantor, this year, now that he's had his 15% trade bonus paid, $20.6 million, And then he does not get traded paid or paid his trade bonus on next year, which is a player option. So that then goes back down to $18.6 million. McDermott, this year, $3.3 million. He can be a restricted free agent at the end of the season, although the Knicks will have the possibility of extending him through the last day of the preseason uh otherwise he'll be a restricted free agent and uh then there's that second rounder from the bulls which should be pretty decent yeah i think that'll be strong we should also mention that Mello has an early termination option for next season and i think that's really important for understanding this trade from the knicks perspective is just the likelihood that each of these two key players that make most of the salary in this trade were going to pick up their option so for me canner picking up his is it's not a lock but it's close you know he's far more likely than Carmelo but if the Knicks felt that Melo was going to be a malcontent and pick up his option and all that kind of stuff then you start to see this a little bit more clearly from their perspective but I think the idea that the thing that I will praise them for here is that they didn't take on any bad long-term money yes they had it for next year But for next season, the Tim Hardaway contract and some of their other disasters made it so that they weren't really going to have that much space to work with anyway. So yes, it isn't great from that perspective, but not adding Myers Leonard's terrible contract, Ryan Anderson's terrible contract, something like that. I think at least under that approach, they mitigated the long-term damage that they could have had by just saying, we want this guy out. 
Yeah, and for the Rockets, they may, this may be deemed a failure, but we always felt that there really was no way if for them to move Ryan Anderson without having to give up a lot of assets, which frankly wasn't worth it for getting Mello. I think that's a, another part of this is that he wasn't really that good. It wasn't worth moving at age 33 for him now, moving heaven and earth to try to get him on the team, especially the places that he wanted to go. And that's why you know I, I had predicted that this would end in a buyout because we, it was reported that Mello was only willing to go to the Rockets and once he expanded his list to apparently the Cavs and also OKC then a deal became available so uh, I'll ask you this Danny I made the point on Twitter which I probably should have expanded upon a little bit to say that Carmelo the Knicks would have been better off just buying out Carmelo now what I meant by that was they would have been better off buying him out before this year's free agent period and that then he could have recouped some of that money and hopefully would have given them more back you know so that maybe they could have gotten something along the lines of like five to eight million per season off because he would have had a new deal lined up with the team he wanted to go to before then to at least get eight to 10 million or so and make every it worth it for them now maybe Carmelo just wasn't willing to do that so I was probably a little bit too harsh when I said that on Twitter I woke up to the news yesterday but what do you think I mean is this return for the Knicks is it better than nothing would you rather just have you know an extra five or ten million dollars in savings if that's what you could have gotten I don't think so, as long as you assume that Mello was going to pick up the ETO, because at that point, yeah, then that the is difference, the assumption. Yeah, which which I think is fair, because that that extra second round pick is, I think it's going to be one of the five best picks in the second round. That should have some real value. And then McDermott and Canner, yeah, I don't think they're going to be any great shakes for the Knicks, and they, they might in some ways help with the tank because they both have specific flaws that could work out there, but at least you're taking a shot at it, and they, it wasn't like they had a lot of other options. So I don't think it's necessarily strong either way. Like there, I would rather probably take the players than nothing, but it's a close call. But also, I think that... Anthony, as a prideful guy, and especially when you consider the dynamics being so different at the beginning of the offseason, where we're having to say, like, if Phil Jackson had been proactive enough to make that decision, and that is a it, it is a fair abstraction to make because it's a useful thought exercise just in terms of if we were the GM or something like that, but it wasn't going to happen. So you kind of have both of those things in play at the same time. That said, what I think I what is a good point that you're making, and I think is something that teams should be proactive about, is seeing the writing on the wall like this or something like this was kind of always the end game there so if they had been more active and done this at the beginning of the offseason or even done it you know like before the season turned over then yeah Melo would have had options and maybe at that point he could have you know he and his agent could have figured out a landing place and things like that and you can create a deal that's worthwhile for everybody where maybe he leaves a little bit more on the on the table but he can be a part of another team's planning from the very beginning remember the Chris Paul trade happened before free agency started they could have lined all that stuff up and it wouldn't have been any sort of headache for them at all yeah I think that's pretty clear and but for the Knicks now, they project to be much closer to the top of the lottery than perhaps they would have with Carmelo. They really have absolutely no offensive creation on the perimeter other than Hardaway. Another reason I think really that the Hardaway deal now makes even less sense without Carmelo with having gotten this return back. Cantor doesn't fit in at all. I mean, they now have basically over $40 million tied up in centers who aren't good enough to start between Noah Cantor and O'Quinn. Willie Hernan Gomez might actually be the best of all those players. Uh, hopefully now he's 
not going to get blocked in his development. And then Porzingis was supposed to place the minutes at center as well. You would hope that he would. That probably he's not going to play very many minutes at all. I would actually predict that he's going to play the least number of minutes at center that he's played in his Knicks career this upcoming season, which is not great in my opinion for his development. But this season is going to be about that that development for the Knicks. And also that has big spillover effects for a bad group of point guards because generally speaking, the more real estate you have to work with, it can paper over some of the creation flaws that guys like Frank Nilkina and some of the other players, Ron Baker, are going to have. And so if you have spacing, then the, the help defense gets there a little bit more slowly, you know, everything like that. But if you're playing a traditional five, almost the whole game, then it just tightens everything up and it, you, you still have Porzingis who can who can wreak some havoc out there, but they have that. And so something that I'm going to be wondering about with the Knicks is if they can be more active in trying to not necessarily move Cantor for nothing, because I don't think he, he fails the Nene test for me at this point. He's not a net asset, but it's possible that they could talk to some of these other teams that have centers like Cantor and maybe the marginal difference, maybe he costs a little bit more or something like that. Like, let's say the Magic or somebody like that, if they just don't like their center rotation and they say, hey, we'd rather have Cantor on his deal than our guy on that, then maybe the the Knicks can get a little bit better from their perspective if they see these things at a different perspective than that other potential trade partner. Oh, man. Hey, maybe uh, Portland will be interested in uh, Ennis Canner, you know, since they gave him that huge max offer sheet because they really wanted him uh, on the team. Uh, uh, but anyway, I think for New York, I feel better about this deal than I did when it was first announced because they did get McDermott, I think, could have some value still. Uh, he'll get a chance to actually try to create a little bit, which I am probably relatively alone in thinking he can actually do. Uh at least against bad defenders, like get into the post and and do a little scoring. But this will be a chance for him finally to get to have the ball in his hands a little bit, you would think. Uh, Nilakina will see more of what he can do, and they'll be worse, and they need to get another real good draft pick. It just... Again, the fact that now 15 months after they spent a ton of money on Courtney Lee, who's got to be eminently available in trade talks now, Lance Thomas and Joakim Noah, all guys who were supposed to to help this team get better, trading for Derrick Rose, which I still think was fine because they got off some money in in Lopez's contract before they (laughs) signed Noah. And then to be a a year later now, total and completely rebuilding, except for the Hardaway contract, a lot of that is really just looking pretty ugly. And I mean, going through this roster, which is not an inexpensive roster, they're not not really going to have space next season and to see just how many bloated, ugly contracts now are on this one team is pretty remarkable. At least they have their own picks now. That's one small silver lining here. They're going to have to actually make good selections, but they have those. I hope they don't use them to unload bad contracts, especially considering right now they're not going to be in the free agent derby for a little while. But yeah, I mean, this is going to be a, a big challenge for them, and it's going to be a long renovation. Something I was thinking about when you were talking about Hardaway is, there is this challenge now where now basically all of their other perimeter players are now a greater focus of the opposing defense. Tim Hardaway is not the second threat on the on this Knicks starting lineup. He's first, so now the best defender on the other team is probably going to a perimeter defender is probably going to be guarding him, and that puts a lot more strain on him. I think that's really going to to stifle their offense in a lot of these circumstances, especially when you consider their point guard situation is. Probably the worst in the league. Oh, no, never mind. Chicago still exists. No, that's an interesting question about whether their point guards are worse than the Bulls. But so 
Like that, I think that's just going to be a big challenge for them. And which of their players can rise to the occasion will be, you know, if somebody does, that's wonderful. But it's going to be very, very tough for them night in, night out. All right. We will talk much more about OKC and what they're going to look like with Carmelo in a moment here. But first, this from Tracker. At least once a month, I'm getting ready to leave the house. And I realize that I don't have my keys or I don't have my wallet. I'm not sure where they are. Sometimes they've fallen into the cracks in this terrible couch that we have. It's like this sectional that really wants to be much more sectional than couch, if you know what I mean. It just falls apart and keys or wallet just fall in there. But no longer is this an issue for me because I own the tracker. With Tracker Pixel, you'll never worry about losing your things again. It's the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. You can put it on whatever you tend to lose. It's got like this little lanyard that attaches to my keys we don't have outdoor cats but if you do have an outdoor cat you could put it on your outdoor cat even and then if you misplace an item that has that tracker pixel attached use your smartphone and a 90 decibel alert uh, will help you find it in seconds it also has powerful led lights you can find things in the dark and it can help you find your phone even if it's on silent as well Better yet, because every tracker user is part of the largest crowd locate network in the world, you can locate items from miles away. And thanks to their 30-day money-back guarantee, you truly have nothing to lose. So if you try it and it's not actually helping you, you could always just return it. That's not going to be the case, though. I think it's really an excellent product that's saved me quite a bit of time so far, even in the couple of months that I've owned it. Would you get started with them? Go to the tracker, T-R-A-C-K-R dot com. Enter that familiar promo code CAPSPACE, which of course we talk about all the time on the program, and they'll get you 20% off any order. That's the tracker dot com, promo code CAPSPACE for 20% off. And to let them know that you came from us, the tracker dot com, promo code CAPSPACE. So I think it's it's a good time to talk about this trade from Oklahoma City's perspective. And I was actually working on a piece for The Athletic about this. And one of the dynamics that I think is very, very important to acknowledge as kind of a centerpiece of this trade, along with the other moves they made, getting Patrick Patterson for the mid-level and getting Paul George for inferior talent, is that last year, the fatal flaws, it were, of Oklahoma City was how devoid they were of talent when Russell Westbrook was either off the floor or not himself. So last year in the regular season, there was about a 12-point disparity between their net rating when he was on and off with 3.3 and then 8.9. And then in their series against the Rockets, they were plus 4.9 against Houston when Westbrook was on the floor. And then in 46 minutes without him, they were outscored by 51.3 points per 100 possessions. That should not be a problem now, especially in the playoffs when they can ramp up minutes for their best players. The big question to me now is what they're going to do with Andre Robertson. Is he still going to start? Is he still going to play big minutes? To me, I almost would rather, I mean, I don't know if you want to bring him off the bench because there's not necessarily anyone for him to guard, but I just, I think with Patterson and Paul George, you've got really enough defense at the two through four. You can hide Carmelo on, on somebody Russ can take the one. He's not great at that, but he'll have a lower offensive load. So maybe he can ramp up his defense a little bit. So we've got Steven Adams at center. I think we'll also probably see now some very imaginative lineups without Cantor as the backup center. Maybe Patterson will play some backup center. Maybe we'll see Jeremy Grant play some at backup center. They'll have some very switchy lineups 
on defense, maybe on the second unit. Carmelo can go get him some buckets. Paul George can as well. George, perfectly capable of being the key defender on the other team's number one option. And so maybe Robertson can have his role minimized a little bit, especially in the playoffs, because they have these other versatile players. And someone like Grant even can be a switching guy, but also provides a little bit more athleticism and rim protection as a big. Or maybe we'll see that Robertson is going to be operate more as kind of a big guy. But even still with he and Adams on the floor, you're limiting somewhat the one-on-one ability of those three great players in the starting lineup. So we'll see what happens there. I think they may get a little bit worse defensively, at least with the starters, Carmelo, you think there's probably going to be someone that other teams are going to try to attack. And much has been made, of course, of Carmelo spotting up, Paul George spotting up those guys much more effective. Ben Falk was tweeting it out. Both of those guys shoot about 40% on catch and shoot threes and about 30% on more difficult off the dribble threes. So I think they're going to have plenty of shooting on the floor. It just remains to be seen now what's going to happen with Robertson and the choice seems to be between he and Patterson and Grant, a very interesting one. If you shift one third of Anthony's 150 about it was 149 pull up threes to catch and shoot, his percentage of on threes goes from 35.9% to 37.8%, even without changing any of the structural elements, which you can argue could in these circumstances. So you can see that in a couple of different ways. I mean, but the most important thing is if you take out the worst shots and add better shots, it, it helps it helps approach, you know, it helps you create a more sustainable offense. And I'm intrigued from a couple different perspectives. And one of them is if they're going to a switchier system, maybe they end up going to a closing lineup without Steven Adams. And yeah, there'll be some real downsides there in terms of risk protection. But if you're switching a lot, teams can get Adams in sticky spots on point guards. You know, he's done okay in some of those stretches, but other teams can exploit it, especially now that you have a a bunch of strong teams in the West, including the Rockets and the Warriors, that have multiple strong ball handlers that you can get him in some tough spots. So if they close some games with Westbrook, George, Mello, Robertson, and Patterson, that's a lineup that's better suited to tackle where those teams are going. Maybe not the whole league, and I don't think they're going to use that during the regular season very much much but to have it ready for the playoffs for a potential second round or western conference finals yeah and i think alex abrinas another guy who's going to be a key player now they did sacrifice some depth in this two for one deal uh, but i thought mcdermott was relatively redundant for abrinas you don't need like two defenseless shooter type of guys out there and Cantor, while he was an effective offensive player how many minutes was he really going to play in the playoffs not very much now they don't have anything as a traditional backup center other than Dakari Johnson who spent a couple of years with their D-League team and now has a, a two-year guaranteed minimum contract so the other aspect of this too is they may want to bring in one more traditional big they've got Nick Collison who's not really playable at this point in his career as well the biggest component of this is clay bennett long time derided as a cheap owner uh, because of the harden deal and i've heard varying things about whether that was actually a fiscal mandate or whether that did not come from ownership and that it was just deemed to be a better idea to trade harden away and, and get that return just for basketball reasons and chemistry reasons but Bennett now is really stepping up. They are going to have, as it stands now, a 
$27.8 million luxury tax payment. And they've already missed the deadline to stretch Kyle Singler, who has uh, two years left on his deal before a non-guarantee on the last year. Uh, You have to imagine, though, a trade to move off of Singler will be coming. I'm just wondering what the price from that is going to be. If they were to be able to move Singler and not take back any significant salary, they would save about $15 million in combined salary and tax payments and get this thing back to being somewhat manageable. Oklahoma City does not have a ton in the way of draft assets to make that happen because they still owe two first round picks, one to Minnesota and then potentially one to Orlando, which was originally the Jeremy Grant pick that just moved on later. And they basically, they only at this point have their second, their own second round picks because they traded that one to Chicago. They have Boston's late 2018 second. Nobody really cares about that. So they can move. They have guys under contract right now that would be intriguing. Jeremy Grant could be one of those. And it would be a shame to see them give up somebody for that. But at the same point with Clay Bennett's history, it wouldn't be a big surprise. And something I I wanted to talk with you about that I think is a I, I was a way that I was framing the trade in my head was last year, Billy Donovan caught lightning in a bottle by the crunch time approach of Russell Westbrook and a bunch of defensive players. And those who listened to the whole podcast we did on the MVP, one of the big elements of that was Russell Westbrook's phenomenal offensive success and workload in the clutch. Well, they're going to have to conceive of those lineups now completely differently because the, they, you know, the three mandatory guys in that at this point are obviously Mello, George, and, and Westbrook. So that completely changes the identity. So where are they going to go with it? And I, I'm not saying it's it's going to fail or anything like that. It's just a challenge for Donovan that is sort of the peril of adding talent. But they had something that worked, and now they're going to have to move away from it for for better or for worse. Yeah, and that also then against the backdrop of keeping all these guys happy, and I would imagine that Paul George is probably the guy who's going to be the odd man out. Like Carmelo is really a shooter. That's all he does. So if you're going to have him out of there, you might as well give him the ball as a scorer. George is going to the one of those three guys who really plays defense. And is he going to be happy being the third wheel now offensively after for nearly his entire career in Indiana being the main focus, a role that if you want to have a really good offense, he's probably a a little bit underqualified for, but he certainly could be a real effective player. And hopefully those guys can help get out and transition as well. We'll see George do some running the floor, which they've not really done in his career so far in Indiana. But this is all against the backdrop now that all three of these guys could be free agents next year. Carmelo's no trade, by the way, does transfer over. Uh, so he, he can avoid a trade if he doesn't want one. But Carmelo, the financial incentive is there to opt in. Westbrook and George almost certainly will opt out. And then there's also the fact that Russell Westbrook still has sitting on his desk uh, and has until the start of the season to sign this designated player veteran extension as well. He'll still be eligible for the same money if he becomes a free agent, but does he want to lock in and see how this goes? Certainly Sam Presti has exceeded expectations that anything that Westbrook could have had when this started, uh, but he may want to say, hey, I still want to see how this is going to go. And then even if all those guys want to come back, You'd have Westbrook making over $35 million. Carmelo, if he opts in, which he nearly certainly will, $28 million. Maybe you could see some sort of a deal where he would do, you know, the Richard Jefferson in San Antonio where he opts out of that money and then re-signs for less over a longer period if in conjunction with George and 
Westbrook coming back. Uh, but then with Paul George, he'll be making 30 million next year, almost certainly as well. Then you've still got Steven Adams at 24 million. And if all those guys come back, they're looking at a tax bill of almost 75 million. I think there's just no way that Clay Bennett could necessarily pay that. I don't think he's has the type of fortune that Dan Gilbert does where he's willing to just keep throwing money at it and has that agreement with LeBron James that he's going to this is going to be just a fascinating season in Oklahoma City they are the team I am most interested in seeing this season by far now another big reason why I'm in the same boat with you there is because my instinct is that this is an oasis year that we see these guys together and then they at least some of them, but maybe all of them opt out and go their separate ways. And so appreciate it for what it is. You know, we might only get 82 regular season games and then however many postseason games they play. And it also adds to this crazy dynamic where now it looks like all of the banana boat guys are going to be free agents in the same summer. So that opens things up. I don't think that would happen in Oklahoma City if it's going to happen anywhere. But the turmoil that we saw in the league this year and, and all the changing of, of the guard. Wait, 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 wait hold on, hold on. Carmelo, I don't think he's going to be a free agent. He's going to I opt do. into that $28 million. You think he's going to opt think, out, huh? I think he's going to opt out because he, he, he knows that the writing is close to on the wall in terms of his competitive and the well the other way that he could do it is trying to pull a Dwayne Wade and you know like opt in and then try to get the team to buy you out right away but I think at this point you know Melo especially if the Thunder are competitive this year he hasn't been on competitive teams other than an international player since like that was that the 14-15 Knicks team or was that 13-14 that was actually good uh the one that, the one that won 54 12-13 yeah okay. they have missed so, the playoffs for four consecutive seasons so I could imagine this being a gateway drug of sorts for Melo, where he's like, yeah, I've made plenty of money in my career. I'll leave some on the table to go to the right circumstance. Now, whether that will present itself is a, is a big question, especially considering there will not be many teams that have both successful squads around them and money to spend. But I, my instinct is that he's going to opt out because especially if like Westbrook and, and George opt out and leave, does he really want to be the man on the island? And getting into that buyout negotiation with Clay Bennett does not seem like the most fun thing in the world. Yeah, well, but he's going to have to make that decision potentially before he knows whether those guys are coming back again, much as Wade did. So I think you, you opting out of 28 million, I, I I would actually be willing to make a bet with you on whether he opts in or out that, that he opts in. Uh, okay. But we could discuss the... It would be... It would, be lo- it, would be, it would be low stakes because I don't feel strongly on this. It's just, you know, it's more for okay. me, it's more like a 55 45, not like a 75 right, 25. All right. Well, I won't. Yeah. Okay. I, I, that's uh, that's fair. How good are these guys now? So, like the Rockets, it's high ceiling. And really, that's all that matters here because if you're going to go after the Warriors, it's going to be high ceiling realizing that. So, I don't think they're as likely as Houston to realize it just because their talent doesn't mesh as well as Houston's does. But there's a lot of talent here. And the idea of putting together capable five-man lineups basically all game takes away the biggest weakness. So I would say... They're the I think they're the third best in terms of talent and all that, and even a little bit of fit. I think they're probably the third best team in the in the West as a playoff team, but they'll pro I think they'll be fourth in terms of record just because the Spurs are a wonderful regular season team, even with their kind of flawed talent, because the continuity and the way that this team executes. So that would set up theoretically an Oklahoma City Golden State four one in the second round, which would be unbelievable. Oh, yeah, I really, really hope that happens. First game between those two teams, by the way, November 22nd. Yeah. And 
I predicted them to win 51 games when I did that podcast with Fred Katz. I would bump that up by, you know, maybe two or three with the addition of Carmelo. I don't think the fit is amazing. Uh, but also I think getting rid of, of Cantor, getting rid of McDermott, they're going to be better defensively now, even if Melo's not great. I mean, the more I think about it, like if he, you'd rather have Melo playing 33 minutes a game than the combination of McDermott and Cantor defensively. And so I think, yeah, 53, 54, I don't think they'll be quite as good as the Rockets or the Spurs in particular, because I don't like their coaching as much as I do for those teams. But yeah, this team definitely has a lot of talent and a lot of guys I'm very excited to see play with one another. I had said and before. And I agree with you. That I agree. I think they're more, they're certainly more, they might still be the most dangerous to the Warriors of any of these teams. It's it's them and the Rockets to me. And yeah. I had said, I can't remember whether it was on, on this podcast or somewhere else, that this was already the best league pass year of my lifetime, or at least the best one that I could remember conceptually and in the realization of it now. It's so much better now because you, you moved Carmelo Anthony, a fascinating divisive player to a more relevant team and you got moved away from guys that I don't care that much about watching game to game so now I mean almost every night there's going to be something that's that's worth keeping an eye on and I'm so excited for the season which is fortunately less than a month away now about three weeks I think it's a great time to be on the the Pacific coast and have league pass for us it may not be the greatest league pass because there are going to be a lot of games that we're just going to have to slog through that just don't really have anything interesting happening in them you know I mean this is now makes another team that's even less relevant but that's fine with me. You know, I I still like watching NBA basketball uh, unless it's the Phoenix Suns at the end of the season when they've shut down all their players. Um, all right, what else we got here? Unless you want to say anything else on that? No, I think that's I think that's about. Oh, all oh, for oh now. there was one oh, other oh. thing. Okay, it, it I had one uh, thing too. Yeah, uh, David Aldridge. There it is. That's what I was going to say. Yes, noted that. The Knicks wanted to get Carmelo out of the Eastern Conference, which, and Zach Lowe, among others, and me as well when I read it, pointed out that that is just completely ridiculous. If that really was a factor, you're going to suck anyway. Who cares? Carmelo is 33. He's not going to be some big factor the next time that you're any good. This is just another one of these media relations got to win the PR battle. I mean, if Cleveland had a better offer, they should have just traded him in Cleveland. Now, I'm not sure what a better offer would have been from Cleveland necessarily uh, because Cleveland probably didn't really, I mean, maybe something involving Channing Frye and, and Tristan Thompson. Uh, maybe Cleveland would have been willing to take Noah's contract as well. I think that might be the, the one thing that's disappointing is that the Knicks couldn't get off any money in this trade. But, you know, Carmelo just isn't that good. He's not worth that much on the contract that he was on. So uh, I think they did okay. You know, I, I, I've come around a little bit more to how they did, especially considering that Carmelo had, of course, the no trade. And this is the second time this summer that Sam Presti has benefited from another team claiming a stated rationale, whether it was legitimate or not, of trading a star player outside of their conference. Because it was the same thing with the Paul George trade, which was another convoluted one in terms of what, what the teams got back. 
And if that's true, it's terrible negotiation priorities and all that kind of stuff. But it could also just be posturing, as you said. I think that's important. And though the other Thunder related thing was this weird stuff about Trey Burke. So it sounded like Trey Burke was finalizing a deal, but then it fell through. And then now Isaiah Cannon is on a non-guaranteed contract. But I think a better use of that last roster spot, because they traded two guys and received one, would be getting a center or even just using a two-way contract or something like that to to get players when you need them. Yeah, I mean, they would have actually been, I think, a really good Andrew Bogut destination mm-hmm. rather than him signing with the Lakers for uh, that 50000 Well, he, 000 he's only 50000 guaranteed. guaranteed. They might they might be able to get him in a couple of weeks. Yeah, and I think there are so many centers out there that they could just trade for, that could get bought out. I'm not worried about finding finding a backup center in today's NBA. is just about the easiest thing there is to do unless you're last year's Charlotte Hornets. Um or last year's Pacers. I mean, there are still teams that that really struggle to to find something like that. But uh, let's move now to something that viewers of the Twitter NBA show are really going to be happy about. Or perhaps if you really enjoy my incredibly annoyed ranting, you'll be disappointed. But it looks like the Lou Williams Harden file, the enforcement on that is going to be changed. Howard Beck with the reporting here saying that essentially if the contact occurs before the player has gathered the ball to go into his shooting motion, that that then will be called as a non-shooting foul. That doesn't help when you're not in the penalty, but the big problem had been, and I actually, I talked to someone who used to work in the league office about this and they, because what we'd always complain about is, Hey, you know what? Like this is a foul, right? The contact occurs before the guy starts his shooting motion. And what that person told me, was that under the previous interpretation, you could have that contact, but because it wasn't deemed to be disrupting the players like rhythm and balance, that there was contact, but it wasn't actually made illegal until the player started his shooting motion and went up through the guy's arm. And that's when the contact became illegal. So that's why it had to become a shooting foul, which struck me as ridiculous. You know, I mean, if the guy's got his arm on you to the point where if you try to shoot it's there's going to be illegal contact it's better to just make it make that initial contact be illegal once the contact occurs and it sounds like that now is going to be the way it's interpreted and that'll make just much more sense for everyone it's a welcome change and the type of thing i was hoping for when when this all came out and we also had an interesting trade so memphis was Wait, in oh, this... oh, oh, one more point i wanted to make on that too, oh sure go ahead is even if they are in the penalty now if that happens at the three-point line at least it won't be a three-shot foul. two shot foul. that's the yeah. other one like, like those the one they were three-shot fouls i mean the three-shot foul for a shooter like that is like the most valuable play in basketball basically like more valuable you'd rather get a three-shot foul than a dunk and that was just to have guys get baited into two or three of those per game the teams that had guys who could do that were really getting an unfair advantage uh all right yeah now let's move to that trade which is oh i just wanted to bring up that if people want to go back and watch the good people want to go back and watch the end of some of those okc houston games that we did on the twitter nba show oh my and just God. see some throwback rants i think it was game four that was the most ridiculous with that it was four or five um uh, yeah was, i think it, it i think it was for the one that houston won like lou williams had like a couple on victor oladipo where i was just like going completely insane yeah that was fun but so memphis created this awkward situation for themselves where they have a lot of reasonable contracts outside of their you know their high-end guys but they had too many because they had i think it was 16 guaranteed contracts before they signed Jermichael green which is still expected to happen at some point point. 
but they needed to move somebody to kind of figure all this out. And so what they ended up doing was Troy Daniels, who they signed to a fairly reasonable contract a little while back, they traded him to the Suns for uh, basically for no- for nothing. They included a second round pick, which are probably in the, in the mid second round. It's it's one of those where they have three and they're sending the middle one to to the Suns. But, you know, I think that I think that's kind of the benefit of being a little bit more patient with your roster spots, because there are some guys out there right now that uh, that are probably getting guaranteed contracts close to it that I would that I think are inferior to Troy Daniels. Yeah, Daniels uh, in the summer of 2016, actually in a sign and trade was brought over from Charlotte on a three year, $10 million deal. He provided some value for Memphis last year, but they have a lot of options now, especially bringing in Ben McLemore, although he's recovering from injury right now that made Daniels a little bit redundant and actually Phoenix can use him because with uh the Brandon Knight injury with the Devon Reed injury they actually need a backup shooting guard on this team so he may actually play there that'll be nice to see that and I think a big part of this too was that Daniels is under contract for another year after this one although his salary does decline slightly and Phoenix not necessarily in a position as we've talked about to do a ton in terms of their cap space, even next summer, their big hit is going to be summer of 2019. A lot of teams have a, a fair amount of 2019 space, by the way. We'll, we're actually going to start putting out those projections on Patreon once we are done putting out the ones for 2018. And also, if you're a subscriber, you would have been able to see as soon as this New York OKC trade went down that we sent out their new uh, cap things within you know about two hours or so of that trade happening and a little disappointing for Memphis to have to give up a pick to get off of Daniels, who seems, as you've mentioned, about fairly paid. But they also are going to need more room under the luxury tax, perhaps, to bring back to Michael Green, who continues to be in limbo. There's some talk, local reporting out of Memphis, I think it was Ron Tillery, saying that they're talking about maybe a two to three year deal in the nine to $11 million a year range, but still nothing that's actually been consummated. And then we got other news out of Phoenix as well with Alex Len taking his qualifying offer. Surprise, surprise. I mean, it, this seemed like the end game there and makes Mason Plumley's contract look even more ridiculous that you had two guys. And, and yeah, you can make an argument that Mason Plumley, you know, that he's better than Alex Len and had a different value approach than Nerlens Noel. But Len takes his qualifying offer of $4.2 and thus will be an unrestricted free agent next year. And we'll see how that works out for him. But he's going to have more playing time because... Alan Williams, who got signed to more money at largely the same position, he can play forward and center. He has a partially torn meniscus, so he'll be out for a little while. Yeah, he apparently landed on a a teammate's foot in a workout and injured it. The Wizards, we mentioned that Markeith Morris hernia surgery, six to eight weeks out for him. So he will miss some games at the start of the season, even maybe as many as, as 15. The Wolves, in a signing that I didn't really care for, picked up Aaron Brooks. The reason I don't really care for it is I fear that Tom Thibodeau might play him some over Tyus Jones. And Jones is a better player than Brooks and obviously has much more potential as well. But Brooks is a Tibbs favorite. And Tibbs did get a lot out of him in that 2014-15 season. But that was three years ago when we thought Brooks already was too old and he was not really effective in Indiana last year. But if this is just a guy to be a third point guard and not really play very much, I like the signing 
but I fear that Tibbs might play him really more than he should. Gerald Green signed with the Bucks. It looks like he will be competing for that last roster spot with a few different guys. And also, the Bucks are now the first team to be without both of their two-way guys because Bronson Coney got waived. And so there, there really is two guys or three or four guys competing for that last roster spot. And now both their two-ways are open, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Jaquan Lewis, I think they, they waived it as well. Uh, Green, the main guy he'll be competing with is uh, Brandon Rush. I mm-hmm. prefer Rush. Uh, there just because of his increased versatility but a surprise that neither of those guys could at least get a spot on a roster that was uh guaranteed to them and the Sixers signing Chris Humphreys that's not guaranteed I don't know where he's going to fit in there maybe the thought is they're going to move Jaleel Okafor and not get back anyone that they want to keep around and so then Humphreys would have a roster spot there but as of now I think the Sixers have 15 guaranteed contracts before you get to Humphreys they do and this move would make a lot more sense if they hadn't paid 11 million dollars for Amir Johnson just to have another have a vet have somebody who who I mean Amir is a better player but you know if it would have been cheaper and then that could have been used for Covington but we've complained about that before so this will be all the complaining we get about it now yeah and then last thing I wanted to talk about the Clippers arena deal it had been hoped that it could be fast-tracked in the legislature to exempt it from California's extremely stringent environmental laws, which basically allow anyone to, under the guise that someone didn't meet the environmental standards, hold up a project with litigation. That didn't work out. Big time lobbying by Staples Center, actually, and the forum in Inglewood, who would basically, their business would be taken away if a new Clippers arena were built there, managed to prevent that from happening. And so that's a setback for Steve Ballmer and company in their bid to either get a new arena or put pressure on Staples Center to give them a better lease deal where they really don't have nearly as good of a deal as the Lakers do. All right, let's get to uh, the Indiana Pacers here. Indiana, to my knowledge, actually doesn't even have a beat writer right now. It's Candace Buckner going on to the Wizards. I think Nate Taylor uh, is out of the business as well. So you'll have to suffice with Danny. We have a little bit different tone on these than we do when we get the local expert in. But Indiana, 42-40 and 40 a year ago, swept out of the playoffs in a very close series. I think it was only 16 points over the course of the four games that they were swept. But now a much different team, of course, with the departure of Paul George. So how good they were last year, maybe not what we should be looking at, other than perhaps if you want to look at as we did for the Bulls, what they were like when Paul George was off the floor. That was a negative 6.5 net rating, 100.5 offensive rating, which is worse than the league type of levels. You think they'll be right around there this year? I actually think they'll be a little bit better than that. And what makes Indiana unusual among teams of their kind of overall talent level is that to start the season, at least, they have a pretty solid starting five. You know, they they have some depth issues, and I don't think Dave McMillan is the right coach for this team at all. But a starting five of either Darren Collison or Corey Joseph, Victor Oladipo, either Bogdanovich or Glenn Robinson, depending on what they want to prioritize, Thaddeus Young and Miles Turner, like, that's pretty good. It's not going to set the world on fire, but they have they have that kind of on their bat. And then well, well, whichever... What's, of, what's pretty good mean, though? Like, like I mean, pretty no good glaring in the sense... deficiencies. <laughs> Well, but glaring deficiencies 
as in, yeah, you don't have any players who are like, uh, I mean, all right, so what's uh, Darren Collison or Joseph? It's probably what, like the 25th best point guard in the league, 20th best point guard if you're lucky, like whichever of those guys emerges, right? Mm-hmm. Is Victor Oladipo a top 15 shooting guard? Probably not. Yeah, I'd probably put uh, him in the 15 to 20 range off the top of my head. Yeah, Bogdanovich or Lance Stevenson or GR3, all those guys probably not among the top 30 small forwards in the league. Uh, th- Thad Young, probably about an average power forward, I'd say. You know, fifteenth best power forward, twentieth best power forward. I would say I'd go through and look at that. Uh, and then Miles Turner can be a quality option at center, although his talent has exceeded probably his on court impact so far. So you know, maybe Turner is the tenth best center in the, in the NBA going into the season. And so that's, I, I mean, I understand what you're saying about them not having a ton of depth. Or, or about them having some depth and no like just massive holes of like non-NBA players. Although if you look at Bogdanovich's advanced numbers, he's a, a, a massive hole in terms of like RPM and his defense. Uh, but there's, I mean, there's nobody here who can create anything. I mean, I think this is, even that starting lineup is a bottom five offensive starting lineup in the NBA. Yeah, I think that's fair. And also worth noting that comparing them to the dregs of the league is not exactly a good thing. You know, like, yeah, they don't have a flawed point guard like the Knicks, but the Knicks aren't, you know, they aren't relevant at this point in terms of the playoff pictures. So it is kind of scaling expectations. Being better than the worst could actually be a big problem for them in a couple different ways. And when we were when you kind of talked to me about doing this, one of the things that I was focusing on was the earlier trade deadline now. So the trade deadline is February 8th before the All-Star game and all those festivities. And so I think the the defining thing of this season is going to be where is Indiana at that point or near that point? Because Thaddeus Young has this is a team full of player options and light partial guarantees for next year. So how they approach things at the deadline will really see whether they fall into the bottom or end up somewhere else. Yeah, I think so. And it's possible that they could be in semi playoff contention. I mean, I I just spent some time like kind of crapping on their roster uh, and their starting lineup, but they probably project as like the 10th best team in the East right now. I, I think that's really true. And so they could be close enough to playoff contention. We know certainly that they don't want to rebuild here. I mean, they wouldn't have signed Collison or, or Bogdanovich. And even the Oladipo Sabonis trade is one that you make more if you're trying to stay relevant than if you're really trying to rebuild. And I think the last time they won less than 30 games in this town has got to be, you know, like 1990 or something like that. Like certainly not since like I've been a sentient NBA fan. Have they been like really, truly bad? I think the highest... I can recall them picking at any point is that 10th when they had Paul George. So they definitely don't want to rebuild. I think that this time, though, it's hard to imagine that they are going to be a team that has any ability to even be you know, a consistent playoff contender of, with this core over the next couple of years. And by bringing Collison, bringing in Bogdanovich, you're really kind of just making yourself slightly better but you know let's just they'll hope for their sake that uh, the lottery odds indeed change though that the earliest that's going to happen is uh, next year and in many ways that could end up being their worst case scenario which is that they're too good to really fall off because indiana at this point you know with paul george gone and everything else unless one of their internal guys becomes a star which i think miles turner is the most likely victor oladipo i mean maybe there's a chance of it but then their other way to do it is through the draft and you can of course as they did with paul george find those players later in the lottery but your chances get a lot better if you pick high 
And I think they kind of sacrificed that this year just because the the worst teams in the league are so weak this year that you're going to have to be pretty bad to get a, a, a top five pick unless you win the lottery. And I think that even just the first 40 games will be enough to separate them from that group. Yeah, you might be right about that. And while they have had success not only with George, but also Roy Hibbert or Danny Granger of guys who were drafted in the late teens, it's really tough to do that again. And they have not had a ton of success other than the drafting of Miles Turner lately. So Oladipo will be at the two. You think they're going to start Collison or Joseph at the one? I think they're going to start Joseph. I think he's a better player, and Collison is a more effective steward of a second unit. But if they're, I guess maybe maybe the way you do it is it depends on what they how they handle Bogdanovich. Because if you if you have Bogdanovich, then maybe jo- Joseph is a better player. But I think I think Joseph's a better fit with the starting off starting lineup. I agree with you. I think they're going to start Collison just because. <laughs> I think you I might be right. Just because because Collison has started the last few years, Joseph hasn't. But I agree with you for a number of reasons. One, Joseph, better defense at point guard. You've got Oladipo in the starting lineup, at least or maybe Lance Stevenson as well. And Joseph's inability to shoot is a, not a great fit with Stevenson, who in theory is going to be coming off the bench. Um, and Oladipo at least can provide some more playmaking. They're going to want to try to see what he can do, stretch his legs, see what he can do with the ball in his hands. And also, I think Collison, with his health record, starting him, playing him a lot of minutes, maybe not the best idea. He's probably better suited for a bench role, whereas Joseph has largely stayed healthy in his career. So at shooting guard, you have Oladipo. Stevenson in the mix there as well and then at small forward Bogdanovich and GR3 although Stevenson might even be the best defensive player of that group maybe it's GR3 as well Boyan of course awful but I think they're gonna have to start Boyan number one because they paid him the most and number two because they just they got to get some shooting on this team and then that creates depending on how it works a pretty rough shooting backup lineup I mean GR3 is not terrible from what I recall but he's not you know he's not great yeah, shakes he's and- more of a corner guy yeah, than but when you have Lance guy. on the floor and then their big man rotation on, at the depth spots is going to be a challenge. Sabonis is, of course, better suited for that than his role early in the season with Oklahoma City, where he struggled as a starter. And then they drafted TJ Leaf, but I think he's out of it. And then Al Jefferson is presumably the backup center because Ek Onabogu is not. I I, w- I don't think they're going to throw him into that fire right off the bat. Yeah, and who knows what his health status is as well. They held him out of summer league as a precautionary matter. But Jefferson, you have to imagine he's not exactly going to come into camp in the best of shape. Uh, he as ever since he hurt his knee his last year in Charlotte, he really has kind of ballooned up. He was a little bit better than you would look at than you'd think looking at just his stats. But they performed extremely poorly when he was on the floor last year. Turner is going to get all the minutes that he can handle. Uh, I think the the fit between Sabonis and Turner is not a bad one because you would think maybe Sabonis, in theory, could get into the post against smaller power forwards with Turner spacing the floor for him. But with his Zoolander post moves, I'm not thinking that he's really an incredibly low free throw rate. I don't think he's really going to be effective there. So if he's going to be good, he's going to have to make his threes. He did that for like a month in OKC, but then really, really fell off, had like a seven for 50 stretch at one point last season, and then pretty much was out of the rotation with the acquisition of Taj Gibson in OKC. So, I mean, do you think, is there any chance that they're going to even get like effective backup play from Sabonis this year? 
It's possible. And the problem, though, is that they're not going to have floor spacing next to him if he's playing with Jefferson. So then he he gets a little bit less real estate to, to, to do what he's doing. But yeah, I think, though, that being in that spot, he'll be facing inferior talent. And especially with the league sometimes transitioning to smaller power forwards off the bench. If it's like a six six seven six eight guy that's kind of playing a little bit just because they don't they don't really want to play a traditional four there, he could take advantage of those guys a little bit or on switches. Maybe if he's gets less predictable in the post, which I am uh, skeptical of because he's all left hand every time. And Sabonis and Leaf to me are examples of really what the draft is becoming to me is almost a two step increase. Step one is what could this can this guy develop the skills that he already has right and Sabonis Leaf you know maybe they can maybe they can I'm not sure you know those, maybe those guys stretch ability post up finish at the rim on offense maybe they can be effective uh, offensive players but that's step one you know I, I don't know whether for, uh, I'm starting to believe not with Sabonis haven't seen enough of Leaf to say but whether they can be good at the things that they're supposed to be good at so that, but that's step one but step two is are the things that they're supposed to be good at really valuable anymore in today's NBA and I think for both those players your answer is probably no they're both going to have to stretch the floor reliably and you know Leaf is intriguing but one of the big challenges that they're going to have to deal with is but it, he he's looked, intriguing you've been you, you were like more you were lower on him than like anybody in the no, draft his, his ability to shoot potentially is intriguing. Okay. Oh no, no, oh, no, he's not. I don't think he's going to be a good NBA player, at least not for a long time. But here's here's another core c- issue with those guys is I think Leaf did a lot better in transition. You know, he moves relatively well for his position relative to college players. And guess what? He's not playing with Alonzo Ball anymore, and that's that's going to be a problem for him. Is just that the easy buckets are going to be rarer at this point, and that's. A concern for him and you know with with leaf you you talked about like are his strengths valuable then the other question is if he's as bad defensively as i think he's going to be can you even play him like are those strengths even worth it considering the weaknesses yeah no no that's exactly right and that's where i was going with the second part of that inquiry so who do we see as guys actually you know what let's do a, a quick read first and then we'll get into talking about some improvement candidates for this team so now that I am engaged, my fiance and I are looking to buy a house. We're going to become real people, have like dinner parties, have like other couples over. And if you're going to do that, you probably need some wine. Unfortunately, I don't know anything about wine. Fortunately, I have Wink. You can get started with them at trywink.com slash to get $20 off your first order. And what distinguishes them from other wine clubs is they give you a palate profile quiz. It's about two or three minutes. They ask you questions about whether you prefer earthy flavors, how you like your coffee, how you feel about salt, how you feel about citrus. I love citrus. Do you like blackberries, blueberries, and raspberries? Those questions, I filled them out, have gotten me some wines that I have really enjoyed. I've never liked wine that much. It always seemed like something that I was supposed to have and supposed to like, but I guess I just wasn't having the right wine until I got started with Wink. They'll introduce you to new, rare, and custom wines that aren't available anywhere else and tell you the story behind each one. And you're going to like them because it's based on your taste preferences, even if you don't know what your wine taste preferences are. So you can join for free, skip any month, you can cancel any time, and they have a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So you never pay for a bottle that you don't like. I haven't found one that I haven't liked yet, but it's good to know that if they don't get it right, which they haven't yet, I want it to pay for the bottle. 
Once again, the way to get started with them and get a $20 discount off your first order, go to TryWink, W-I-N-C, trywink.com slash capspace. That URL easy to remember because we talk about capspace all the time on the program. Wink will even cover the cost of shipping. That's trywink, T-R-Y-W-I-N-C.com slash capspace to get $20 off your first order plus complimentary shipping and let them know that you came from us. So I see two main players that in theory could get better than they were last year on this team. And that that really, what how those guys develop this season is going to determine a ton about the future of this franchise. Victor Oladipo and Miles Turner. Let's start first with Oladipo. What did we see from him and where could he realistically improve this season as he goes into uh, age 25? So Oladipo has played in a, a pretty wide variety of circumstances over the last couple of years. You know, Orlando turned over a fair amount and then, of course, jumping to Oklahoma City and playing with Russell Westbrook. And something that I really am intrigued by looking long term is that he really did up his three point sh- frequency with the Thunder. Also, that kind of corresponds with a decrease in usage because you play with Russell Westbrook. But he also got to the line a lot less. So what you look at with him is kind of can he with a, a larger workload and a greater impetus because so much of their offense is going to depend on him. Can he embrace the necessity of being a little bit more aggressive and work with that? And then I think he has more defensive capability than he has shown. He's had some nice moments the last couple of years, but a sustained game-to-game impact would be very useful for him because that's why he was drafted so high, was the possibility of being a true two-way two-guard. Yeah, and he got a lot of Dwayne Wade comparisons coming out of school. But the problem is he just doesn't have anywhere close to that level of feel for the game or moves or passing ability took a bit of a step back playing with Russell Westbrook of course last season and he has the athleticism when he gets to the basket but and he had just about the same usage rate you noted shooting more spot up threes because he was being set up by Westbrook but I thought just about everything else in his game seemed to take a bit of a step back last year and that includes his defense you know the thought when he was drafted was hey this guy can guard the best two on the opposing team maybe he can't guard big threes but he can whether it's a one or a two this guy can lock him down and Oklahoma City was too scared to put him on James Harden and he couldn't even guard Lou Williams in the playoffs and assuming that Bogdanovich is the starting three let's if for that standpoint, Oladipo is going to have to be their best perimeter defender. And if they're going to be successful, he'll have to do at least a decent job because Bogdanovich is terrible. So that's going to be an issue. Getting to the line was something that, considering his strength, you you hope that that could be there, at least penetrating the first line of defense. And again, his assist rates aren't particularly remarkable at this point or really early in his career. He was in the 20s early when he was young, but then now he was he was 18.6 his last year in OK in Orlando and then 12.5 with Russ in OKC. Yeah, and the hope for him really to take the next step is to improve his pick and roll ball handling. He wasn't mm-hmm. awful in that role last season, but he didn't do a ton making passes out of the pick and roll. A lot of his pick and rolls came on the second unit as he attempted to anchor that unit. That's going to be tough for him. They didn't have a, a ton of shooting. He was misplaced as the primary creator on those units. It's going to be a struggle for him. But if you can't even be much of a creator against backups, it's going to be hard to be the primary perimeter creator on this Pacers team, which again is not going to have a ton of other threats. At least they might have some spacing at center. That's the one thing that you hope that because his finishing, despite his athleticism, has been another disappointing aspect for him. 
and maybe with a little bit more spacing, he's been playing on Orlando teams on that OKC team last year that didn't have a ton of space. Maybe that can help him to be able to get to the rim a, a little bit. But I'm still, you know, you just don't see those slithery moves, the vision, the feel that you expect from the best offensive players in Oladipo. And maybe he can get to be competent, but you don't even see him really as more than a third option on a good team. And especially if he's not going to really be above average defensively, despite the fact that he has all these great tools, it's hard for me to see him living up to that $20 million a year contract. Although you always think maybe it's slightly possible because he's just such a good athlete. Yeah, there there is a, a rationale to to bet on a guy who at least had the talent to go to go early, and that was justified. It wasn't like it was considered a reach when he went there. But again, you're going to have to see it, and I think you're going to have to see it soon. Otherwise, it's going to be a big issue. Miles Turner, something that I thought was well, one was more fa- thing on Oladipo sure, too. But by the way, sorry, he you'd think, well, hey, here's a great athlete who has doesn't have the greatest technique on either end. Maybe great coaching could help him discover a higher ceiling. And I don't really think that that is in the cards with uh, Nate McMillan from what we've seen from him, especially defensively in his career. Certainly a fair point. Where I wanted to start with Miles Turner is actually in a weird way along those lines, not in terms of development, but just in terms of utilization of talent. So last year, he shot 40% on jumpers and and he shot 32.8% on threes, which is pretty pretty good for a center however the distribution here is a little bit of a concern so about half of his jump shots were from 16 feet to the three-point line so long twos then about a fifth were threes and a little bit less than that were from 10 to 16 feet and that's just not the way that you want that apportion. I mean, you can have some that are a little bit closer. You shot better on those. Then you want some as threes because they're worth an extra point. And a system that properly utilizes his offensive gifts opens up space for everybody else. But you have to actually do it. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. And Turner will probably get a chance to get into the post a little bit this season. It doesn't really have the feel in the post, the power game that you would hope. He still is a a little bit light in the shorts, doesn't have a great base, not a great post defender either for that reason. But what he likes to do, even when he has the mismatch, is just catch the ball and he's got this nice high release where he doesn't really bring the ball down. So he'll just like turn from 17 feet and shoot over someone, almost always over his right shoulder. And that's a shot that late in the clock, it's nice to be able to go to. But unless you're Dirk Nowitzki, you're not going to be effective with that shot as a primary part of your offense, especially because even someone like Nowitzki, when he was younger, he could pump fake that, put it on the floor and get to the foul line. Turner, very low free throw rate so far in his career and not really a guy who's going to drive to the basket, face the basket and make a play. He's basically when he catches the ball he's kind of just stuck in that area and he can just shoot over the top pretty well but he's not really able to make plays once he receives the ball in space and then the other thing that we have to talk about early on with him is his defensive rebounding because Turner has been a disappointment in that element and you can't blame that on where he is on the offensive end in terms of jump shooting because it's defense and they're going to have to get that from somewhere especially considering Thaddeus Young is he's not bad but he's not really a strength there and defensive rebounding even if opposing teams aren't prioritizing offensive rebounding is still central to keeping this afloat because it's not like they have amazing personnel on either end of the floor yeah Turner's personal defensive rebounding not great last season he got 19.6 percent of defensive rebounds that's not good for a center with his gifts and then the team not helped by the fact that Thaddeus Young even Paul George not a great defensive rebounder uh, only got 
74.9% of defensive rebounds. That's relatively low in the league. So he's not great at that. He definitely got beasted in that Cleveland series by Tristan Thompson on occasion. But he is just a wonderful shot blocker. Like now he's got to improve his technique and mobility in terms of just getting into position more often. But when he's there, I think he will come out of nowhere. He's his short area quickness is much better than you'd expect. Just taking two or three steps to come across the lane and just get guys when you're they're not expecting it. What did teams shoot against him uh, when he was in the uh, contesting shots in the restricted area? I'm seeing a, a defended field goal percentage of 49.4, but I'm not sure if that's just in the restricted area or not. Well, okay, yeah, that's that's I think at the rim. It's like within five feet or whatever it is. Okay, right? so uh, yeah, which is not amazing, uh, but I think he can get better in that area. I think part of it too is he just has to get better at using verticality as opposed to actually going for the block every time. Turner, to me, overall in terms of his ceiling, I think he's gonna be a very valuable player. I think he's gonna be a player who is going to get a $20 million a year contract, and he's going to deserve it, especially if he can improve his three-point shooting as more of a pick-and-pop option uh, and a quality defender. But I think he, Porzingis, to some extent, although Porzingis is the best offensive player of these guys by significant margin, and Thon Maker, I all kind of put in this category of guys who you talk about as unicorns, guys who can shoot the ball, but block shots on the other end. Maker, probably the best defensive potential of those guys due to his ability to move his feet. The other two guys, probably a little bit better offensively, but guys who can shoot threes and play great defense, and they have varying degrees of star reputation. But the one thing I think none of those guys are much good at, Przingis, again, having the best hope of improving this, is just creating their own shot and really being a go-to option in the post other than just out of pick and pops. But all three of those guys, I mean, that is just a very valuable player who can be a center defensively, block some shots, and then also pick and pop for threes on offense. The league is slowly going to need to figure out exactly how you want to pair with those guys too, and I think that's been a challenge for all of those teams. And we're going to see some different options. I mean, Porzingis is going to play the four. Miles is probably going to play with a a smaller four in Thaddeus Young, and Joel Embiid is going to have a series of different combinations, but Ben Simmons is probably the most likely guy next to him. Anybody else you see as someone who can significantly improve over last year on this team? I don't know if it's necessarily an improvement, but I think that Corey Joseph can show what he can do on a not only a larger stage, but he's never played more than, I think it's 25.6 minutes per game in his career. So if he gets the starting role and can be a little bit more there, I think he could do could do a nice job. And he has a player option after this season, so he could become a free agent. While he's never going to be a top-tier guy or anything like that, if he can convince somebody that he can be a capable steward, then that puts him in a different area. Maybe he could get a contract similar to a point to what Jeremy Lin got, but in a less in a less strong market, obviously. Yeah, Joseph, another guy who really has to improve his shooting as well. Off the ball, not very effective. Takes a long time to get his shot off. A, a relatively unwilling shooter. Same thing if he's trying to run some pick and rolls. But his ability to guard, even to play up a little bit and guard some twos as well. He has abilities playing in two-point guard lineups. We may see some of that from this team as well. He's a valuable player to be sure, and that'll be one of the more interesting opt-in, out, opt-out decisions. But you have to imagine he could get six or seven million a year for a little bit longer at least, so it, it might be worth it for him. That That sort of player type who isn't really a starting point guard but can play a little bit in two point guard lineups play like 25 minutes a game 
that's going to be an interesting price point, especially with the, the very limited 2018 market that uh, many of us have noted before. What do you think about guys who could take a step back next year? The first one that comes to me uh, is Thaddeus Young, just because he shot 38% on three-pointers, and he also was 48% from three to 10 feet. And while he does have a nice floater game, I don't think he's going to be able to duplicate either of those numbers next season. I agree with you on Young. I think that's a, a big risk here. And their offense is kind of predicated on having two guys at the front court positions that can actually shoot because the, that's their playmakers need that extra space. And so if he can't do that as reliably and teams can collapse a little bit, that'll really hurt them. Also, another guy with a notable player option. And so whether he if he disappoints, then maybe Indiana has less payroll flexibility next year. And that also makes other teams less likely to want to acquire him. Still a reasonable contract, so it's not that bad. This could be the year that Al Jefferson just becomes totally unplayable. He does have a full guarantee for this year and some money tacked on for next year. And considering Anabugu is really the other guy since Seraphin is gone now, that could be very dangerous because they just don't really have that many other options unless they're going to try Sabonis or TJ, you know, a Sabonis leaf front court combination with the second unit. And that opens a whole other can of worms, which I'm not sure they want to open. Darren Collison's another guy. This is going to be his age 30 season now. He's been remarkably consistent over the last four years, three in Sacramento, one with the Clippers between 575 or between 57 and 59% true shooting. But last year, in a few ways, his worst season out of the last four, which you'd expect for a jet quick guard. But he also shot 42% on three-pointers last season. And I don't necessarily expect that to continue. His finishing at the rim dropped off significantly last year as well. And he's usually good to miss in his time in Sacramento. Never played more than 74 games. Played 45 and 68 the other two years. So it's quite possible that he could miss time. And I don't expect him to be able to continue that shooting. But he does at least have some experience trying to create offense on uh, some limited offensive teams. Are you ready for a live reaction to a to a move? Because we don't usually get to do this on the podcast. Uh-oh. Nikola Mirotic signed a contract. All right. Can I guess what it is? Sure. Three years, $37 million. Two years, $27 million, second year team option. Okay. Uh, I think that's uh, a reasonable compromise. Uh, and yeah, the, the, the team option makes it so much better because then that way, you know, they can get out of it if they really want to. The Bulls, I'm not sure their space is going to be that valuable next year, but they can consider it at that point. And they're saying like Shams Trania had the original report and also said that Mirotic has the right to veto any trade in year one, which I'm not completely understanding how that works. But anyway, I mean, I, I'm not sure that that's a huge part of this deal anyway. Yeah, well, because I think the reason is if he gets traded, uh, then he and the what his new team declines the option, then he would lose his bird rights. That's probably okay. So it, oh, because since it's team control, okay, I get it now. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, right. but no, I, I think that's a fair deal for both sides, and I think the, the team option is a little bit better than the non guarantee, especially if maybe the Bulls even want to decline his option see what else is out there for them in free agency. And then maybe they could bring him back on a longer term deal as well if they wanted to. Although for him, it's got to be disappointing to some degree. It seemed like he was looking for something more in the range of three years and 45 million. He's getting about what he would have wanted on a per year basis. And he's also getting more than the qualifying offer would have been. 
so this seems relatively fair and at least like that's this is where i think for a lot of these guys the compromise has to come in terms of just taking a shorter term deal so they can get back on the market the team option is an intriguing idea but at least if they exercise that team option he's getting paid 13 million a year which is not bad it also creates this weird circumstance where the Bulls are overstuffed in the front court and might actually value the guys that are on lower money contracts over the guys that are probably going to be starting because Markinen and Christiana Felicia, who they gave a bunch of money to this offseason, I assume are going to be behind Miritich and, Brooke, and Robin Lopez at the start of the season. All right. Uh, who are we talking about again? The Pacers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who might disappoint and where I wanted to go with it. You talked a little bit about Collison was yeah, with with Al Jefferson potentially falling off and just the lack of the lack of options at that level for this team. Like it, it's a weird circumstance because I don't think they're shallow, but they don't really have a lot of options to stay competitive if their best guys aren't good. So they they don't have fallbacks because if they had fallbacks those guys would be starting. Yeah. Uh, no, that makes sense. Um you mentioned Jefferson as a guy who could fall off Bogdanovich shot it very well last year although his defense I mean I don't see any chance that his defense gets much better Lance Stevenson played very well in like his short time with the Pacers he could very well not repeat that performance so I think the crunch time lineup to me seems pretty clear unless they move on from Thaddeus Young you know that's certainly a possibility especially if he can opt out there might be a team with an injury at power forward i think young can be a quality option if not a great one as a guy you can switch and be versatile at the four position what are uh, the strengths for this team if any I'm, I'm having some difficulty coming up with any to be honest floor spacing from their bigs is is definitely a yeah. strength and and that's something that is semi unusual for both guys and you know if Thaddeus Young's shot can be more reliable and so they have some pick and pop options and also I like Miles Turner as a role player too he's one of those guys that can do both and I I really do enjoy that Carl Anthony Towns Anthony Davis a few other guys that I really do enjoy in that role Porzingis can do it too and so they that opens things up if if they didn't have that flexibility their offense would completely fall off a cliff instead it will just slightly fall off a cliff and that's a useful thing and also just the number of they don't have a lot of really good players but they have a lot of solid players so they're not running into a circumstance where there's just a complete horrible deficiency at a position that can totally sink a unit or sink a season however i'm not confident at all that mcmillan is going to be the master chemist to get the most out of that like let's say spo did with miami last year no he all spo also had way better talent obviously yeah, I really can't think of what else would be a big strength for this team. And in terms of weaknesses, I agree with you. I think their depth at one through three is okay. Four and five, I think they have some of the worst backup bigs in the league, most likely. And now Jefferson can at least fulfill a role in maybe getting them some buckets on the second unit, if healthy, but overall not really a positive player, I don't think, at this point in his career. And then ability to just to get to the basket and finish is a big problem in this team. Lack of passing, I think, is a huge problem. I don't think you have anyone that you look at as an above average passer for their position on this entire roster. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, the hope was always that Oladipo is going to be there, but we haven't really seen that yet. Passing is one of these things. I've said that 
it's very interesting that all of these offenses that are really the worst offenses all of them like really suffer from a lack of passing i mean we could talk about a lack of shooting lack of ability to get to the basket but passing is just as important and they just do not have it on this pacers team and it's the same problem with atlanta same problem with chicago really outside of Dwayne Wade all these teams we're talking about as being some of the worst offenses have that issue and coaching you would have to look at I think as a weakness as well especially on the defensive end if this team is going to make some noise I think it has to happen defensively you know they they, if you just look at their talent it's not bad you know it's probably about average defensive talent on this team and they've lost George but Joseph is a solid defender. Old Depot, Stevenson, those guys were okay. GR3 is okay. Young, Turner, like that's a, should be a decent enough defensive front court. But between McMillan and also having some backups who can be really bad defensively, I don't expect this team to get uh, to being average defensively either. I don't think so. That would be a problem. But you're right that that would be the the big like way that this team could outperform expectations would be if they could do that. And also then they would get more transition looks, which I think is the best shot for their offense to be capable. Yeah, I'll still remember that 60 point in three quarters game that Clay Thompson had against the Pacers last year. I was talking to Nate Taylor, who was their beat writer at the time, and I didn't want to ask McMillan because I couldn't tell a single adjustment that they made the entire time to to try to stop Clay as he was putting up 60 points. And so I was like, hey, Nate, like, do you, do you just want to ask him this? Because, like, you know, Nate McMillan doesn't know me. I'm not really around the team. Like, I, don't, I didn't want to ask a combative question like, hey, what adjustments did you make? And so uh, Nate was kind enough to ask it for me. And McMillan basically had no answer at all. He was like, oh, you know, we had to just do better or whatever. And like, uh, it was pretty clear he didn't do a single adjustment for the guy putting up 60 points on him. And I'll, I always kind of remember that. Uh, and then, you know, I wasn't too impressed with his coaching performance in the playoffs either when I really had the microscope on him at that point. Can I, so can I make a small uh, note yeah. that you just told an anecdote where all three of the principals were named Nate? <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty funny actually yeah maybe i should i should be kinder to mcmillan if uh, uh us nates need to stick together maybe yeah i mean we know that we kp stands up for fellow kevins so they're i i only have danny <laughs> i only have danny green so and i i do a pretty good job standing up for him but it, but yeah i mean so i think we should get into the idea of kind of where what a good season what a bad season what a realistic season is for this pacers team yeah so they're over under at the time we did our show 31 and a half this is one that you and i actually differed on i went with the under and you went with the over what's uh, i actually i'll go first with with my win prediction i don't think they're going to be much under that i i struggled with it but i think for the reasons i talked about with i don't think there's gonna be a quality offense you know i think they're if not bottom five they're bottom seven in offense probably and then i don't necessarily see them getting above like the low teens in defense so maybe they could be run-of-the-mill bad they could also maybe make a trade and move on from Thaddeus Young if they do that they're going to be playing really bad guys at the four most of the year you could even see Collison or Bogdanovich or Corey Joseph getting moved as well potentially if they're out of things although again this has not exactly been an organization that has embraced the realism of being out of contention and trading guys as early as they should so I think I'll just go with 31 wins for this team, and that still might be the 10th best team in the East, amazingly. 
Yeah, so, so the teams that I'm kind of looking at as barometers from last year, and there are problems with that, of course, because every year is different in terms of, you know, the ebbs and flows is more like Sacramento and Dallas. So Sacramento and Dallas last year, Dallas, I would say, underperformed relative to their talent level. Sacramento, you know, about, about right. But the concern for the Pacers in this way is that they're the teams below them, if they just gobble up those easy wins, that they can kind of push this a little bit. And yeah, they're going to get worked by the five, 10 best teams in the league, but so do all the teams in their range. So I'm going to say 33 and it's going to swing so much based on where they are on February 8th, because if, if they make that move, but the history that we've seen is that they didn't. And when they had the chance with Paul George, finally, when they right. decided to trade him, they went win now. They didn't get any draft picks at all in that trade. So uh, when I'm kind of going, well, thinking about where they might be at that point, I'm leaning towards prior precedent and going that they're going to that they're not going to sell. And remember also that late in the season, assuming they keep a lot of these guys, almost all of those guys are playing for their next contract. So, yes, tanking, quote unquote, involves sometimes sitting guys. But if Thaddeus Young is still on this team, if Corey Joseph is still on this team, if Darren Collison is still on this team, you know, those guys are still going to be pushing because they all could be free agents. Bogdanovich could be a free agent too. Yeah, although the counter to that is, hey, you're going to be free agent. Why don't you just sit out? Everyone knows what you did this year. Why don't you just sit out these last 10 games and not get hurt? Yeah, that's true. But I, th- I think some of those guys might be trying to make a better impression if the if the season has been yeah. kind of had a malaise on it, especially if they're playing bad teams towards the end or teams that aren't trying. Maybe they're sitting guys for whatever reason. It's like, hey, I have a chance to score 30 and maybe some coach GM is going to see that game and go, oh, let's 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 get that guy. All right. So you had 33. I, I have 31. It'd be interesting to actually once we get done with all these predictions to actually line these teams up and seeing well i think we'll do our usual day before the season predictions pod best case scenario for these guys i will go first i think maybe like i mean what do you think the best is they could be in defense like 13th or something yeah maybe like 13th in defense and 20th 22nd in offense something in that range yeah so maybe that's like a 37 38 win team i'll say 37 i really again right in the thick of playoff contention i mean 37 could get them in i don't think it will but it could Yeah. Well, I think the lowest that it's been that I can recall since like 2000 is 38 wins for the eighth seed. And I think this is the year that I am, I think it's most possible that someone could go below that. So, so what are you saying? You're saying 37 as well for their best yeah. best case. So you go 37, higher? and then and then worst case to me is just that they're in the bottom. So maybe like 26, 27. I could absolutely see that happening. Yeah, I might even go as low as 25, especially like if Turner, if either Turner or Young, any game that those guys are injured, they're going to be in trouble. Uh, they've got decent depth at those guard positions, but uh, even if Oladipo goes down, Lance can kind of be a reasonable facsimile of what he's giving them. So I'd say 25. Would you say 26? Yeah. All right. We're very, we're very consistent. <laughs> well, this, this isn't a team With where this. there's a lot of variance of opinion unless you really love Victor Oladipo. No, that's true. Or or Turner. I mean, that's that's really your hope is that offensively that Turner and Oladipo just really take huge steps forward, and maybe maybe that's how they get into being in the uh, low twenties and to the high twenties in terms of ranking. By the way, let the record note that I called this team's number of wins exactly last season at uh, forty two wins. One of the few that I was uh, particularly close on. Kudos. <laughs> uh I mean, maybe this is kind of boring, but real quickly, what grade would you give the team's ownership and front office over like the last five years? 
Okay, so the last five years does not include drafting Paul George. So you have to think about the opportunity. So they never really had good draft picks. So that that part of it does go in their favor. But I think the biggest mistake they made was just not seeing the writing on the wall with guys like Paul George and also the the misfires with guys like Al Jefferson, things like that. So I'd probably give well, them well, something. The, in the-, the Monte Ellis signing to me oh, God, was, that's was right. the beginning of the end. I thought that until, or maybe even you could go back to the Evan Turner trade in 2013-14, where, I mean, this team was like 35-6 and six at one point, I want to say, in 2013-14. That was really their high watermark. And then I, I thought they did well to get off of Roy Hibbert to realize that he was done. And bring in Thad Young in a trade, I thought that was okay, you know, for the 20th pick. I think he's a guy who's going to give them starter production. The George trade, obviously, they could have done a lot better if they they blew that one. Bring in Ellis. The Teague trade, I didn't really care for as much either. And although, you know, really that didn't end up hurting the franchise long term, George Hill probably would have left just the way that Teague did. But most of the move, if you look at their individual moves over the years since that 2013-14 season oh they they did at least avoid giving Lance Stevenson a big contract that was good so uh, I think the idea of just loading up and then the coaching thing with Vogel and McMillan I thought that was a downgrade as well I mean I think you'd have to give them a D maybe even possibly a D minus uh but it's not like oh hey they went from being the number one seed in the East to being out of the playoffs. That was inevitable anyway, I think. But they also had some resources, including cap space, where they could have tried to rebuild around Georgia. And none of their free agent signings really worked out at all, unless you want to count Young, who was essentially taken into cap space. Underappreciated piece that really kind of sent this off the rails was David West declining his player option to take the minimum with the Spurs. That's when they kind of should have seen some of this writing on the wall. And why I would go D minus is just because the biggest thing they had to do was figure out Paul George, and they absolutely failed at that, not only in terms of waiting too late to trade him, but the package they got for him was horrendous. So I think I'd go D minus. Yeah, yeah that, that's the biggest thing, right? If you, you could say maybe it's a D up until then, and then that trade takes you down to a D minus. And, and now, especially because they just have no direction. This is, I mean, someday we should, we should do something along the lines, like what ESPN did with like the future power rankings, but basically maybe we could just do it as which team would you most want to be a fan of, you know, rank them that way. And I think the Pacers have probably got to be right as of now. And they really have one player on this roster that I'm excited about. That's Miles Turner. That's it. And again, if, if I'm right, and they're just a little bit better than the worst teams, then it's going to be hard for them to add that next guy too because they'll probably i would guess they'd be picking by both of our most likely range that's probably something in the like eight range something like that is that about right yeah uh, i think you're probably right about that and getting a difference maker there to pair with turner could be difficult but maybe they get lucky in the draft um and, and they do deserve credit for drafting turner even though he was really kind of the obvious pick at that point in 2015 number 11 Okay, I think we're done here. Let's do uh, a quick read, and then we'll have uh, Spencer Percy back uh, right after this. So now that I'm back from this trip where I got engaged, my fiance and I excited to get started again with Blue Apron. For the week of October 6th, we've got a couple of things we're really excited about. Number one, there is our 30-minute meals. They have that option now to make things a little quicker at, at times when you may not be able to make something as extensive as some of the regular meals shrimp and squid ink spaghetti with spinach and tomato sauce and then bok choy and sweet pepper lo mein with fried eggs and cashews those are the two that we're going to have our first week excited about getting back in the kitchen with blue apron 
If you're not familiar with Blue Apron, what they are is a food delivery service that brings you all of the ingredients perfectly portioned out to make some of your favorite meals. What we do actually is there are only two of us, but we order the four person meal and then we have some great leftovers to make as well. You can get for two, you can get for four, up to four people, less than $10 per person per meal. I think that's less than what you would be paying if you went to a premium grocery store and bought this quality of ingredients and there's no food waste either because they're sending you exactly the amount you need pre-portioned for these meals. They updated their recipe cards as well. So they're even easier to follow the way to get started with blue apron and get your first three meals free with free shipping. Go to blueapron.com slash cap space, that familiar URL. We talk about cap space all the time on the program. That also lets them know that you came from us. Blueapron.com slash capspace is that URL. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. I will right, we'll get to Spencer Percy now. I apologize in advance. My audio quality is actually really bad. I screwed up my settings, but his is actually really good. Hopefully you can just try to ignore me and he's the one who's the expert on this team anyway. So uh, I apologize in advance for that, but it's still really a good show and uh, we will try to do better on the audio quality next time, but it's still some good content on the Hornets and uh, please check that out right now. All right. We're going to bring on now our now three time Hornets expert, Spencer Percy from Queen city hoops. Also has a Hornets podcast, buzz beat radio. What's going on Spencer? How are you? Uh, great, Nate. Uh, appreciate you having me back for the third straight year. Experts, a, a strong word to use, but uh, a, a, a sad, somewhat aspiring Hornets fan. I think it's more appropriate use there. <laughs> Well, yeah, we talked last year after what had been really the best season in the rebooted Bobcat Hornets era, uh, almost made it to the second round, were felled by injuries in that it was really, I thought, an underrated series against Miami that people, since neither of those teams did anything the next year, nobody seems to remember. But last year, it was a disappointment, as you alluded to. Uh, but there's some reason to think that they were better, really, than their ugly record from a year ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that they definitely got a little bit unlucky uh, last year. I mean, they had the point differential, really, of, I think, what is like a 40-41 win team. Um, you know, they were 14th in offensive efficiency, 14th in defensive efficiency. I mean, they were very average across the board. But, um, yeah, I think if you just kind of run the numbers team-wise through a vacuum, it would spit out something that's closer to 40 wins and and less of 36, which is what they ended up with. But, you know, to be fair, they also just kind of uh, – the Hornets honestly executed a, a really stealthy tank uh, in the last six games of April that no one really realizes. Uh, and it ended up being actually like super worth it uh, because they got Malik Monk. So <laughs> um, I think that had a lot to do. You know, there's just those last few games of – why they ended up um, at 36 wins and not the larger population of the season. But, uh, but yeah, you, you look at the numbers and they were a little bit better than that, I think. Yeah, and actually in what was a similarly disappointing season in 14-15, they did much the same, losing like, you know, 10 in a row down the end. Uh, so, yeah, I think one of the other things that really stood out about last year's team and, and that everyone really has been hitting on, we talk about it all the time on the podcast, was that 3-17 and record when Cody Zeller was out of the lineup. Why were they so bad when he was unavailable? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think there's a few different, um, you know, theories to it. I mean, I, with Zeller in the game, uh, he really does connect all the dots. I mean, just the pick and roll with with him and Kimba Walker, um, which which doesn't sound like with just when you hear Kimba Walker, Cody Zeller, like some lethal pick and roll combination. But I mean, with those two guys on the floor, this team was 
just completely opposite. Um, you know, with Kim and Zeller on the floor uh, together last year, it was just over 1,500 minutes. And they had a, a 7.5 positive net rating. They had a above 110 offensive rating and, and just shy of 103 defensive rating. So, I mean, those guys just make everything click. Um, when Zeller was off the floor, um, the Hornets didn't have an identity on the offensive end, and they had to play Frank Kaminsky at the five a lot. Um, which completely changes everything. You know, I mean, I think Kimba's developed so much synergy with Zeller in that pick and roll or short roll that Zeller's become so efficient at. Um, and then it gets the ball moving from the side to side. I think when you plug Frank in there, um, it just it's a completely different dynamic. Um, and, and it's harder for Kimba, quite frankly, to get really good looks with Kaminsky setting the screen uh, instead of Zeller. Zeller's one of the best and most underrated screen setters in the NBA. So, um, you know, if any of that makes sense. But but it is it is perplexing somewhat to kind of look at how bad they were when Zeller wasn't out there. Yeah, well, and Zeller, to me, has long been an underrated player. You mentioned his role into the basket in screen setting. Ask any NBA coach, and they'll say one of the hardest things to get a big man to do is just effing roll to the basket as hard as you can every time. Set that screen and get your butt into the restricted area, suck the defense in, and then, you know, nine times out of ten, you're not going to get the ball there. So that's why it's hard to convince guys to do that, but you are sucking that backside defender in, and now you can move the ball around it and get open looks. And Zeller, he plays hard all the time. He sprints the floor hard as well. That's the other thing that coaches can never get bigs to do. Uh, And then on defense, I think he's very underrated. He's not a shot blocker, so you think, oh, this guy's not that great defensively. But his mobility is really impressive, and he is one of the better verticality guys. He gets his chest in front of guys, meets them with his quickness out above the restricted area, is able to jump vertically, not foul, and force misses around the rim despite uh, the lack of length that people concentrated on so much when he was coming out of school that thought maybe he might be mired to the four for that reason. But as we've seen really these last two years— it seems like he is kind of prone to breaking down. Is there a feeling that he just, you know, can only kind of play so many minutes or so many games and then he's going to come up with some injury? Because it's never like, you know, something that's like really debilitating, but it's a contusion. It's it's a sprain, something like that. Yeah, no, I mean, what Zeller, you know, his game is almost very similar to like Michael K. Gilchrist is in terms of like the way he plays. He just plays with so much physicality. He puts his body on the line a lot. Um, you know, he gets into those 50-50 plays that I would, you know, I would describe that that lead to bumps and bruises and, and a lot of the things you were just describing. So, you know, I think he puts himself on the line a lot. Um, I think it helps now. We're going to talk about this more later in the show. You know, with Dwight there, um, he's not going to be asked to play 30 minutes a game. Um, you know, anymore, and, and he'll come off the bench. I mean, his role is gonna gonna certainly change drastically. I, I think he'll still in the games and, and you know be with the Hornets on the floor late in games, but um, but he's gonna be asked less of uh, with Dwight there now. You know, I think that really helps. And one other thing, actually, I was gonna mention. We talked about the Hornets last season, and, and then we can uh, put that to bed. Is inexplicably they had. <laughs> A negative 30.4 net rating in, in with five minutes or less uh, left in games where the, the point differential is less than five, which is just like Ooh. historic. That has to be historically bad. I mean, when I saw that number, I, I honestly yeah, could that, not. That's be- like uh, Sixers, the year they went 10 and 72 bad. Yeah, I mean, it's just unbelievable how bad they were in clutch situations. So you have to imagine that gets better, too, for Charlotte uh, moving into this year. But, yeah, back to Zeller. I, you know, I think that asking him to do less – 
Um, you know, physically, which translates to both ends of the floor is definitely going to help him. Um, you know, and, and again, we'll talk about that more when we get into Dwight later, but, uh, but yeah, he just, he puts himself in the line a lot. And I, you know, I think that you'll see that have to see that, uh, much less volume in uh, 17 and 18. So you mentioned uh, that Dwight Howard has joined this team. It's the expectation then that he's going to start and Zeller's going to come off the bench. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's everything that we're hearing out of Charlotte right now is that that I mean Clifford came out and said it. In fact, last week that Dwight Howard is going to be the starter. Um, now he didn't technically say Zeller would come off the bench. I mean, I guess you could like leave the door cracked to the idea that those two could start together. Um, it's been fun for me to kind of dive and in, into some numbers and see how that would work. Probably not too well, but it's fun to dream about. Um, but yeah, it sounds like Zeller is going to come off the bench, play a lot of minutes in the front front court with Frank Kaminsky, uh, and those two were actually actually really really good together on the floor uh, last season. So that is what it's sounding like right now, and. Um, you know, part of that is feeding into the Dwight Howard, you know, ego that, that you need to feed into if you're going to, you know, inherit that risk. But um, but yeah, to start the season, it sounds like it'll be Dwight. I think that makes sense both for the ego reason you mentioned and also because if you need to get minutes for your traditional center who might be a little slower as Dwight is starting to become here, I think it's better to do that at the beginning of games when other teams usually are starting their traditional center as well. It's like a non-aggression pact that we're both going to start our lumbering center that we know <laughs> is in our best lineup. And then Zeller, a lot of second units are more non-traditional and Zeller wants to finish games as well. And I think that's fine because Dwight Dwight can be very effective there. And also, as you mentioned, there's an expectation that Zeller's minutes are going to be down a little bit. Do you see any possibility that he's going to play Zeller and Howard together? Like, I think he might try it. No, I, I think he's definitely going to try it. Um, I think he has to, right? Like, I think, again, if you're going to inherit that Dwight Howard risk, like, why not try to just play these two seven-footers on the floor together, um, you know, kick the can down the road one more time with this Cody Zeller as a power forward experiment while you have the opportunity and just try to be like absolutely impossible to score on at the rim um, defensively and just rebound everything. Um, send maybe two guys to the offensive glass, like try some gimmicky stuff that maybe not gimmicky, but maybe try some philo philosophical basketball things that Steve Clifford has not traditionally done. And, and, you know, having two seven footers um, and one, uh, in Cody Zeller that, that actually has pretty good mobility, you know, why not try that and, and, um, and try some things that as a coach maybe you hadn't in the past. So I think he has to experiment with it. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I, I think also they're at the four, at the three, they're a little light. They do have some options there with Marvin Williams. Who do you think uh, this starting lineup is going to be for this team? And uh, like, how is Clifford going to play out the rotation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's Kimball Walker, Nick Batum, Michael K. Gilchrist, Marvin Williams, and Dwight to start the game. Um, you know, I think that... You know, I, I think that Cody's, you know, coming off the bench for Dwight and then Frank, you know, comes off the bench for Marvin. How they, you know, fit in guys like Monk and Lamb, um, you know, and other players off the bench is, is going to be a little a little trickier. Michael Carter Williams, you know, if his health ends up working out the way that we hope it will by the time the season gets here, you know, he's going to have to run the second unit, um, probably starting in the in the second quarter. Clifford has liked to keep Kimba out there. Um, really throughout the first quarter um, here in the past few seasons with, uh, you know, the first wave of the second unit. And then 
Um, you know, so he takes Nick Batum out first, and then starting the second quarter, Batum comes back out. Kimba um, or Batum comes back in the game. Kimba comes out, and then that's when they would insert the second point guard in Carter Williams. So, uh, but it, you know, that that's another thing that the Hornets got to really hope and pray for is that Carter Williams is ready to go by the be- beginning of the season because they're um, dangerously thin at point guard. Uh, if Carter Williams isn't ready to go, I mean, Julian Stone. Um, you know, he's been in the NBA here and there. He's had a few stops, but uh, certainly not a guy that I think they're ready to give time to um, to start the year. So Carter Williams being healthy is a, probably a, an underrated storyline for Charlotte as the season approaches. Yeah. What's the latest on his health? So he's practicing. Um, you know, he had the procedure. Um, uh, I, I can't remember exactly what the procedure is called, but he had it on both knees. Basically, they transfused the, the PRP, blood. I think. Yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah, they kind of transfused the blood, put it back into the knees. Um, you know, it, the interesting thing to me is that Carter Williams structurally has never had like a serious knee injury. It's just like wear and tear. I think he had like a bruise or something that kept him out. A uh, bone bruise in his knee kept him out around a month with Chicago last season. But um, you know, there's never been like a torn ACL or anything like that or PCL in his knee. So, you know, it's bothersome to me because it tells you it's one of those injuries that's like reoccurring and it's not going to go away and it's going to take constant therapy. And so that is that is a little bothersome when you consider how important the point guard position is to Charlotte. And if Kimball Walker is not healthy, like you can flush the season for this team. So um, so, yeah, they, they really need Carter Williams as bad as he's been. Uh, the last few seasons, especially last year in Chicago, he's still really important to this team. Yeah, the backup point guard situation, in addition to the backup big situation, a big part of what sunk this team last season. And one thing I think they could maybe try is to have Batum be the backup two, uh, or Lamb be the backup two, Batum be the backup three, but have him be the primary ball handler on the second unit, play him with Monk, and then have Monk guard point guards on the other end. But Monk, you know, I saw the latest report from Rick Bonner, you've probably been monitoring it closer than I have, that that ankle injury he suffered that kept him out of the uh, summer league is still bothering him, actually. It must have been a much more significant ankle injury than was believed initially. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I think the ankle and and getting back from that 100% has been a slower process than the team had hoped. I think it's better, you know, of reports in the past few weeks coming out of the Hornets have been, you know, he's able to do more now. I think Clifford's thing more, and he does this a lot through the media with his guys, uh, with his players, is, you know, kind of sends that uh, sends that message uh, if he's unhappy with something. And something tells me, I don't have inside information here, but I know Clifford enough uh, and can kind of read into his quotes. Something tells me he was a little bit perturbed with like Monk's conditioning, um, you know, coming in uh, to Charlotte this summer and as training camp approaches. And, and Clifford obviously understands that the ankle has <clears throat> hindered him in that way. But I, I think that Clifford also hoped that he would have done other things to, to get himself more ready than maybe he has. Again, no inside information there, but I wouldn't read too much into that. That's also Clifford sending a message to his player, uh, which which he likes to do. Yeah, it's interesting. I think this wasn't a direct quote, but Biles' most recent story that I read said uh, he couldn't make it through a non-demanding optional workout, which, yeah, that now that you mentioned that, does sort of have the, hey, this wasn't demanding, like, get your ass in gear. Now, if exactly. it was, yeah. his ankle was hurting and he couldn't make it through, that's one thing. If it's, oh, he just wasn't in shape enough, then that's another yeah, I mean, Clifford is like notoriously tough on on rookies. He he doesn't play them very much. Um he expects 
He expects them to earn every single ounce of keep that they have in the league. And so, you know, that's another conversation is how much playing time, you know, will Monk actually see this season? I think by the time we get to the midseason, especially late season, he's going to be a part of the regular rotation and probably will early in the season as well. But, like, don't be surprised if the first few weeks of the season um, the Hornets are, like, barely playing Monk. Um if not at all, just because Clifford's like, he's not ready. He's a rookie. He doesn't understand yet. It's just like the kind of old school coach he is. Um, sometimes that becomes maddening and other times you, you really enjoy it and respect it um, because it's a part of the Hornets culture now that he's built and has become really successful. So it'll be interesting to see how they fit Monk into this rotation. But, you know, I think you're right about Batum, you know, kind of running the second unit, being the ball handler, you know, allowing Monk to uh, guard point guards in the other end and gosh, doing your best to hide Batum somewhere on defense. But um, I think the plan Wait, would also... It, yeah. it's really, it's gotten to that point where Batum is, it has to be hidden on defense. I think he's awful. I mean, I, I wow. just from okay. like the eye test, I, Batum, yes, he has like the tools phys- physically, you know, he's got some length. He's got some, uh, a good wingspan. I mean, like on paper, you would think this is a guy defensively who, who could like do something never in a stance, uh, rarely moves his feet. Doesn't show much of an interest on that, on that end. I mean, those little fundamental, the little things, that especially a Steve Clifford system ask of his players on the defensive end, Batum uh, does not do very well. Uh, and I know that that is pretty maddening uh, to his head coach. And, you know, we're, we're, we've, we're two seasons in now here with this experiment with Batum. And, um, and we haven't seen much of a willingness to improve there. Um, and I think it has had some real residual effects. I mean, I think you saw it last season in, you know, the Hornets really slipped down defensively and they couldn't keep the ball in front of them at all. And Batum was a, a huge issue um, with that. And on top of the fact, Cody Zeller missed a lot of time. But uh, but maybe I'm being a little over the top with hiding him on defense, but he is not a good defender in my in my honest opinion. He's a below average defender in the NBA. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, he always has been over. I think you mentioned he has physical tools, but he's kind of got these narrow hips. You're right. I think he he kind of doesn't really get his butt down and get, get into a stance a lot. So it, he was always over. I never looked at him as a stopper, but you know, to be honest, I had never thought of him as, oh, this guy is just killing them. But I'll have to watch for that much more closely this, this season now that you mentioned that. Um, let's see. What else did I, did I want to ask you? I guess you mentioned Malik Monk and the fact that Clifford was somewhat negative towards him in the press but i was shocked to see that he actually had something positive to say about jeremy lamb yeah (laughs) yeah you know what i actually and we'll talk about this probably a little later too i actually think jeremy lamb has a big time opportunity um this season i mean there's really no excuse for him not to be the first wing off the bench uh for the hornets um you know i think because there's nobody else (laughs) Well, partly, yes, partly with that, you know, but Jeremy Lamb, actually, I I did a a player forecast. Um, We're we're doing a a series of player previews on Queen City Hoops right now, and I did Jeremy Lamb's a few weeks ago. I was actually really surprised to see, like, he is improving from an efficiency standpoint pretty much every single season he's been in the NBA now. I mean, last year, what you really saw from Lamb um, is his ability to like get to the spots where he is most effective much more often. So he got to the to the rim, to the restricted area, to the painted area much more often last season. He's super effective when he gets there. It's actually shocking um, how effective his numbers are 
or how good his numbers are shooting from there. You know, not an outside shooter yet, and those are the numbers that dropped uh, last season. Um, you know, can he discover a three-point shot? I'm not sure, but uh, but there's still hope, I think, for him to be a little bit of like a second banana in terms of a creator with the ball in his hands and pick-and-roll situations off the bench, which this team needs badly. So, you know, all that said, I, I think that I, w- I would not be surprised if Jeremy Lamb, I don't want to say has, has a breakout season, but like if he's earning more minutes um, consistently in that 20 to 23 minute range per night this coming season than he's been able to since he's been in Charlotte so far. Yeah, they desperately need a contribution from him because uh, as I mentioned, it's basically in terms of guys with wing size coming off the bench, if they're going to start Kid Gilchrist and start Marvin Williams, you really don't have anyone other than him. No, exactly. I mean, I, mean, I think like Travion Graham is a name that, you know, no one and the national media knows about, and quite frankly, a lot of people, even that are covering the Hornets and, and cover another team from in this division, know about. But Travion is going to push for time this year. He had a good summer league. Um, he had a pretty good ending to last year when he earned more minutes for Charlotte. And if I'm Jeremy Lamb, that's the one guy I'm worried about because I think he is ready to earn minutes uh, with Charlotte, and he fits more of that like three and D. Uh, role that you see a lot in the NBA. He fits that role more so than a guy like Jeremy Lamb does, a guy, you know, in Lamb who needs the ball in his hands more often. So, like, the question becomes, do we, does Charlotte benefit more from a guy like Lamb coming off the bench, kind of a volume shooter, a creator, you know, he, he needs the ball in his hands to score, do things, be effective, or do we benefit more from a guy off the bench that comes in, can kind of lock down the wing, um, probably more so than Lamb. I wouldn't call Travion Graham a lockdown defender, but you know, is a good wing defender and can stretch the floor and just kind of be a, a spacer shooter. You know, like which which does the second unit benefit more from? So that'll be interesting to watch too. I think Graham's ready to compete. Interesting. Yeah, I'll be honest. I thought of Graham as really more of just a body at this point, a guy who is strong has some defensive potential, but do you think he can shoot the ball at all? Yeah, I mean, I, Graham can definitely shoot the ball. He's super comfortable doing it. You know, we don't have enough of a sample size to, to dig in and see, you know, this guy's a lights-out shooter, but his numbers aren't awful. I don't have them up right in front of me, but um, he's in the mid-30s, you know, somewhere, but I think you watch him shoot the ball and you watch his form. He has a high release. He shoots it on the way up. Um, you know, he's a pretty quick trigger. Like, he checks all the boxes to, like, where it's not inconceivable to imagine him as, like, a 38 39% three-point shooter, you know, above 42% from the corners. And is that kind of player more valuable than a Jeremy Lamb? Maybe. Yeah, it's possible, depending on what your team needs. Um, so who uh, do you think can do better than they did for last year's Hornets, a team that, by the way, I'm looking back at our predictions from last year, I think, again, people forget, just because this team is off the radar, that the expectations were really high for the Hornets last year. I mean, they'd won 48 the year before, and had a really good point differential, and then uh, you predict them for 49, predict them for 46. Obviously, they went that, uh, had those 36 wins, um, so that was a pretty big disappointment, despite the tank at the end, but who uh, can get better off of last year's performance? You mentioned Lamb already, but uh, who else sticks out for you? I mean, I think Marvin Williams is probably the guy that needs to get better the most, especially offensively. You know what you're going to get from that guy defensively. Um, But his shooting numbers dropped from just about everywhere on the floor last season um, from uh, from 15, 16. Um, You know, 
from the corners, he was like 36% last year. I think the year before that, he was somewhere around 44%. So just like a massive decline uh, in his shooting. And he was such a big key to the Hornets' success um, in 2015 and 16. I mean, he was he was one of the better you know power forward floor spacers in the entire NBA. Uh, and last season just really, really saw a massive decline. So, I mean, a lot of that is obviously age. You know, he's 31 now. Um, I, I think the Hornets were... You know, when I predicted 49 wins last season, uh, I was, you know, obviously in a, <laughs> in a naive spot. I mean, once you start watching this team on the court uh, last season, you realized how thin they really were. So, you know, Marvin Williams was asked to do a lot uh, on both ends of the floor. He led the team in blocks, um, which tells you how much space, you know, he was asked to cover on the defensive end. Uh, and then offensively, you know, it was either Kimba, um, you know, doing some, especially when Zeller was out, it was either Kimba doing something, um, just taking a guy off the dribble, and, and there was not a whole lot of help coming, especially from you know a guy like Marvin Williams, whoever was guarding Marvin Williams, and you know he was just run off the line a lot more last season, and at his age, he's just not going to be able to create a lot from that. So, you know, it's really important for the Hornets and, and insert Dwight Howard, who can hopefully become a you know a really strong roller to the rim to start getting that defensive gravitational pull, you know, working again and opening up guys like Marvin Williams to just catch the ball and shoot it in rhythm. He didn't have that luxury last season, especially when Zeller was out. So I think physically um, he just had to do way too much. And at his age, um, that's a recipe for disaster. He needs to be asked to do less. And I think he'll play less minutes this year too. Yeah, really his shot mix was almost pretty much the same looking at you and you had it right. He's 46 percent for the quarters two years ago. 37% last year, 40% overall on three, down to 35% last year. And that was really the biggest difference. And, and he had not been really a 40% three-point shooter in his career before that. So I think it was fair to expect some level of regression. And, you know, I think he's going to be a guy that defenses respect. He's really important with the spacing he provides. I would also say that uh, MKG being back and playing the whole year, probably not a great effect, as you mentioned, because teams don't need to guard him. That's going to make Williams get fewer shots because you can stick closer to him and the shots that he has got maybe are going to be a little more contested. But I, I'm worried about him just in terms of dropping off defensively. You know, I mean, I think he's always been, in his Charlotte days, at least, a really solid defensive player. And, you know, at some point, he's not going to be able to be like one of the best shot blockers on the team anymore. What he's been able to do late in his career when it, it really looked like he was pretty much dead as a defense player a few years ago to get back to being pretty good has been impressive. But you have to imagine at some point he's going to fall off. But maybe he'll shoot the ball better as well. Who else do you see as uh, a guy who can be better than they were last year? I mean, I think it has to be Nick Batum. I mean, he was <laughs> – there's another guy that literally shot worse from everywhere on the floor – um, he was awful as a pick and roll ball handler last year. Actually, here's a really good stat. Yeah. He he was worse in off he had the worst offensive efficiency among any player in the entire NBA that had 300 plus possessions as a pick and roll ball handler last season, which is pretty mind boggling for a guy who's kind of labeled as a secondary creator. Uh, he was literally the antithesis of that last year. So like he has to, it can only get better from there. So like he's your obvious. <laughs> I think a uh, progression candidate, but, um, and then again, he shot the ball worse from everywhere. I, you know, I, I just think like Nick Batum is, is he's a tough fit, um, in a Steve Clifford system. You know, Clifford asked his ball handlers, his creators to make the easy play, um, to, to try to make the game simpler. Um, you know, Nick Batum is a home run hitter when it comes to 
you know, he has great vision, right? Like he sees the floor very well, but he loves to take a lot of chances with pocket passes um, and in and really tight windows and weird angles. And it just it results in a very high turnover percentage. Um, that percentage was actually a little bit down last season from 2015-16. But I mean, he's got to shoot the ball better and he's just got to be somewhat competent as a secondary creator uh, in the pick and roll. Well, and in his defense, he was playing on the second unit with someone like Jeremy Lin two years ago, you know, and right. Lin was able to be the primary guy. Batum is valuable because he can be the secondary guy, but asking him to be the primary guy, I think, is really too much. Or maybe if Malik Monk is really good, or Lamb ends up looking better than we expect those guys to be contributors, then he can get some more help on that second unit. But you know how much they struggle when Kimball Walker was off the floor with Mont Sessions was a disappointment and then ended up getting shut down with that meniscus surgery late in the season. So, yeah, I think part of it is just he's being asked to do too much. And, of course, just having a career year at 27. Now he's going to be 29 this year. So, like Williams, it's interesting, right? He took a step back from what had really been a career year so you, but you know, really disappointed last year. So you think, okay, maybe on that level he can be better this year. But they're also really past the the crown of the aging curve now, and so maybe that this is what's going to be the reality for both of those guys. But that's going to be one of the keys to the Hornets here, I think. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I mean, you're definitely right. I mean, Jeremy Lin was such a big part of the Hornets' um, success in 2015-16, and I mean, you just kind of start to reflect on their past two seasons. And the more he pops up in, in my mind and in conversations I have with other people, just about why it went so wrong last year is, is to your point. They literally just had nobody that could create any offense outside of Kemba. Um, but you feel better about that with the Hornets with this year. I mean, you know, look, you got Kemba, you got Nick Batum, you got Jeremy Lamb, who I think is ready to take a step. If Michael Carter-Williams can be healthy, will Malik Monk be ready to be somewhat of an offensive creator as we get to maybe beyond the all-star break? I mean, there are some guys who can do things now, not enough, but more, way more than last year. So it resembles something more like 2015-16, I think, than opposed to last year. And of course, this is all contingent on health, but um, but but I think it's looking up for Nick Batum in, in that uh, in that regard. So we mentioned how Williams and Batum both had career years, then had disappointing years, and now it remains to be seen, given their ages, whether they can bounce back or not. Kemba Walker is nearly the opposite, right? He had by far the best season of his career. I think it played beyond a level I would guess that either of us thought was possible. Maybe I'm, I'm misstating for you. But he's also still young enough to, to take a step forward this year. So which of those do you think is going to happen? Like, Can he build on what he did last year to be even better? Or is that really a high water market from him and we should expect him to be about the same or maybe even regress, despite the fact that he'll be only 27? Yeah, no, um, I think it's um, I think it's really hard to expect him to be better or even as good uh, as he was last season. And props to my, my boy, Brian Geisinger over at uh, Busby Radio. You know, he hit me with a lot of numbers the other day and a bunch of them were about Kimba. I mean, <laughs> his catch and shoot numbers from last season. He was an almost 48% uh, percent three-point shooter in catch-and-shoots. That's better than Clay Thompson, J.J. Redick, and Kyle Korver uh, all last season. I was number three in the NBA among players with at least 100 three-point attempts, uh, number one in the NBA among players with at least 200 three-point attempts. Uh, overall in catch-and-shoots, 70% effective field goal, number one in the NBA. I mean, like, I, I think it's 
and there's more numbers that, that jump off the page at you, but I think it's really hard to expect him to, to do what he did last season, which is really unbelievable. I mean, he was the entire Hornets offense. Yeah, you look, especially early in the year, he really was carrying them before they had that ugly stretch when Zeller was out and kind of fell out of playoff contention. If you look at his shooting numbers, there's nothing that pops out as like so ridiculous. I mean, he did shoot 40% on threes. You mentioned those catch and shoot. Uh, yet, but the fact that he's able to take these threes off the dribble, I mean, what he's done the last two years, going from 30% to 37% and then 40% last year there is a progression there you know is he going to shoot 40 percent on these very difficult attempts that he takes that's a question but I, I think he's gotten to the point now where you just have to consider him a very solid shooter and then you know it's not like his shooting at the rim was unbelievable it was 55 percent last year 60 percent the year before i think that's another one where maybe you can chalk that up a little bit to the mkg effect of just not having the spacing the finishes are more difficult and i think now with Howard out there as well, and MKG in that starting lineup, it could be kind of difficult for him again to get to the basket. We'll see whether Howard's rolling helps him yeah. or hurts him in terms of the amount of space on yeah. the floor. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think with Kemba, it is, I mean, the Dwight Howard fit is going to be fascinating. Um, but, you know, I, I think really the bigger picture for him is just like, he's still at the age, to your point, where he can take another leap or at least sustain what, he's, what he did last year. But, I mean, the guy's already eclipsed 15,000 career minutes. Um, you know, again, last year was a career high in attempts, makes, and percentage. So the volume's up. The efficiency's up. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, it's, but it's the knee issues he's had in the past. I mean, he's had a number of knee procedures now to just – I mean, he pretty much has one every single offseason um, on that knee to just clean it up. Did uh, he have one this year? Uh, he did have a small procedure uh, this offseason again. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty that, sure. Uh, that's slipped yeah. past my radar. Man, I'm, uh, I need to get more up on the Hornets. I don't know how I missed that one. But uh, was yeah. it just like a like PRP type of thing, or was it like an actual like real surgery? Well, he, it's pretty much the, the exact same thing that he had last summer. Um, actually, I'll try to look this up right here. But it's just they go in. You know, he had the – he had the surgery on the knee, I guess, what, three years ago now um, to repair it. And, you know, since then, they basically go in every offseason just to clean it up and just, uh, you know, I'm, I don't ever dock myself as a medical guy. But, it, you know, it wasn't anything serious. Just go in there, uh, clean some stuff up in that knee. Um, but, I mean, again, I mean, he's eclipsed 15,000 uh, career minutes um, as much as he's asked to do. Uh, I mean, you know, is as shifty of a player as he is with the ball, um, how easily he creates space for himself in the mid range to free himself for three pointers. I mean, I mean, obviously his knees are taking a beating and you just wonder, you know, how much longer is he going to be able to do those things, uh, at this level? So, but he did it last season in a much higher clip than I expected. Uh, I think anybody probably expected. So I'm not going to tell, I'm not, I'm not going to say he can't do it until I see him. Yeah. No, I mean, I, expressed a lot of concern for him coming off of that surgery last season that that was a reason for pessimism and you know he of course eclipsed all expectations uh where's mkg right now as a player yeah um he's kind of the same player he's been for the last few uh you know few years um you know he's got serious 
you know, issues with shooting the ball. I think it's fair to expect that to probably never end. I don't think he'll ever stretch his game out to the three point line. And, and we can only hope for him to be, you know, a, a flirt with being an average mid range shooter. Uh, mid range numbers weren't terrible last year, but, you know, it just takes him so long to get the shot off. You know, defensively, I made this point on Buzzbeat Radio a few weeks ago. I think the addition of Dwight Howard defensively might really help Michael K. Gilchrist in terms of just allowing him to be the wing, the lockdown, or at least above average uh, wing defender that he was labeled as being, you know, coming out of that draft class. And I just don't know that he's been able to do that with Charlotte to this point because he's been asked to anchor everything on the defensive end. You know, he's always in overhelp position. Um, helping off his man too much, which takes his defensive field goal percentage way down because he's given up way more open shots than he should be. Um, you know, he feels like he has to block shots. He feels like he has to rebound the ball every time. You know, he's just I, I think he's tried to be everything for this team defensively. And I think it's affected, um, you know, other parts of, of really what he does best on defense. And that's just be a ball stopper. I think if he can get back to just focusing on that, not feeling like he has to overhelp all the time, you know, getting in passing lanes more, just guarding the ball. Um, I think you can really see his effectiveness as a defensive player skyrocket. And I'm hoping that having Dwight Howard back there at the rim, you know, helps him in that regard and uh, opens him up to just focus on his role and not everyone else's role on the court. Because you watch him play and it's really felt like that the last few seasons. Yeah, and Howard, for all the issues he's had, is still effective at the rim, really deterring people when he's in the area. I think Clifford's conservative system of leaving the big back, it should be perfect for him. And then you have someone like Kate Gilchrist who can fight over screens and, and be intense and keep, keep competing out there to avoid giving up open shots with Howard laying back at the rim. All right, let's do a quick commercial here, and then we'll be right back to talk about our outlook for the Hornets season right after this. All right, what do you see as the crunch time lineup that Steve Clifford is going to deploy? We we're just talking about it. MKG, I think whether he will be a part of that is a very interesting question. Yeah, I think this is it's going to be pretty fascinating. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with how quickly Malik Monk comes along. Uh, you'd like to see him in there, you know, in certain spots, if, if not full time by the end of the season. But I mean, I think like as of today, I would say it's probably um, Kimba, Nick Batum, Marvin Williams, um, probably Michael K. Gilchrist and then Cody Zeller. You know, I, I think that Clifford really likes to have two ball handlers, uh, if not three on the floor at the same time to close games, uh, and then also still be able to deploy that, that true center. So that would be Zeller. Um, you know, last season they, they experimented with Frank a whole lot, but that's because, you know, frankly, for a lot of that time they had to when Zeller was out. But, but yeah, I think it's Kim and Nick, uh, Marvin, either Michael Carter-Williams or Monk, and then Cody Zeller. Yeah, and Zeller due to maybe his defensive versatility. And just to be very interesting to see whether Clifford can really get the effort out of Dwight Howard if he's not closing games, he's not getting post-ups. I think he can still be a really effective player if he concentrates on the things that he's good at. But then, of course, the free throw shooting as well as another potential issue coming down the stretch of games. What do you think are the big strengths for this Hornets team? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think defense, I think they can, they should get back to being a top 10 defense. I think they could, you know, if Dwight really buys in, has energy, uh, turns into a true rim protector, I think there's no reason they can't be a top five defense. Um, you know, I think rebounding, they're going to, I mean, I would put a lot of money on the fact that they're they're going to be the number one defensive rebounding team in the NBA this year. Yeah. You know, they take them or the Spurs. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that you know, Charlotte's traditionally, you know, that good in the defensive glass. And, you know, now add Dwight Howard into that. Um, you know, there's no reason they don't clean up there. Um, you know, I think turnover percentage. I mean, I think they're going to take care of the ball. They always do that. I mean, I think those are the obvious things, transition defense. Um, but, you know, the transition defense thing actually brings up an interesting point that, that we've talked about it, uh, you know, on, on Buzzbeat Radio a lot recently is like, with got with a guy like Dwight Howard now inserted into the lineup, you know he's going to play with MKG to start games, presumably and and, and probably throughout um, you know a lot of the season. You know when you have two of those guys on the floor and your floor spacing and you know and the offense is is going to struggle with both of those guys on the floor. I think that's obvious. But like, is it the time to deploy like sending two guys to the offensive glass? Yeah. Uh, where whereas like. Steve Clifford had, would turn his nose up to that idea pretty much his entire coaching career. But like you look at this team and like there are they have the tools to try something like that. And I think they should. Will they? Probably not. But but I think they should consider it. And the same thing we were talking about earlier, you know, if Zeller and Dwight share the floor in spots this year, like why not just have those guys crash, crash the glass, try to muck stuff up, get gimmicky and create points in ways that other teams aren't looking to do. You know, it's the it's the mar- market deficiency, if you will. Uh, a lot of teams, every a lot of teams don't try that stuff. You know, everybody wants to get back on defense, limit transition points. I think the Hornets have some pieces where they should try sending more than one freaking guy to the to the offensive glass uh, now, and, and I think they might be able to find something there. So that will be interesting. Yeah, I think so too. I, I've said that really the way I would want to attack the offensive glass if you have the personnel is you get one of your bigs back. And Marvin actually, as a solid rim protector, if he's hanging out around the three-point line, he can just get back. And then if you've got MKG hanging around on the baseline or wherever it is that he's standing to try to not muck things up too badly, but he can usually kind of get a running start, get around his guy. He's a tenacious offensive rebounder. And then you mentioned Dwight as well. I think that is something that they should explore. I agree with you. So they were 14th in offense last year, 14th in defense. You say that you see the defense likely improving. I feel similarly when they're not playing Kaminsky at center anymore. I think you're going to look a lot better. Session's not a good defensive player. I think Carter Williams actually can be somewhat effective defensively, even if it, again, is shooting could be a major problem. But, but the offense was 14th, amazingly, despite the fact that really the only player who had what you would look at as a good offensive season relative to expectations was Walker. So do you think that that 14th ranking goes up or goes down? Um, gosh, that's a really good question. I, I think that it's pretty much going to stay within like plus or minus two of where it is now. I, I My gut says it's going to get a little bit better. I, I just think this team is deeper. Um, you know, defensively, I think they're going to be a lot better for the reasons I said. But then, you know, you have Dwight out there, which allows your wing defenders to stick with their man a little bit more, uh, overhelp less, you know, getting the passing lanes, make life more difficult. You know, and then on the offensive end, you know, you have a guy like Dwight, if he's given effort, if he's rolling to the rim, if he's drawing gravity, uh, defensive gravity, you know, now the ball's moving, you're getting second side stuff, and then you bring Zeller in, and we've already seen the efficiency with him on the floor on the offensive and defensive end. So, like, I don't know. I, I think there are, like, with the Hornets' pick-and-roll heavy scheme, I think this team that they have and this roster that they have uh, makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it's going to spit out numbers that were a little bit better on, than they were a year ago on both ends of the floor. So, like, I don't think this is a top eight offense, you know, but I, I think there is a universe exists and where like this could be a ninth, 10th, 11th, you know, top 12 offense. 
If I had to bet, I will humbly disagree with you here. I think it's going to get worse. Uh, I, I totally allow for the possibility that it could get better. But I do think, well, Kaminsky wasn't so ineffective as a center. Playing him at center as much as they did, you know, he had the third best offensive rating on the team. Now, I will say that not playing Roy Hibbert any minutes is going to really help them because Hibbert might be you know, the worst offensive player in basketball. or pretty darn close. Uh, so that was pretty ugly. That was and, terrible. Yeah, and, you know, Kaminsky, I think, it's, even though he hasn't hit shots the way I think you would like him to, I think he's a quality offensive option, defense we, we can talk about. But So I think there's reason to believe that getting rid of those guys who are just really bad. But Howard and MKG together, I worry about the overall spacing on this team and in the starting lineup. And the hope, I guess, is just that Walker and Batum having those guys together. But I do think Walker is going to take a little bit of a step back so far or uh, this year, maybe not an enormous one. And then also there's the possibility of him missing time. Uh, he, only, he played 79 games last year, but I think as you talked about, any game that he missed, you know, they're really difficult to see them winning that game. It's all but the worst teams in the league. But I, I don't think it's going to be awful, you know, but I could see them falling into like the 18-19 range. There are going to just be some horrendous offenses next year, and I wouldn't put them necessarily in that category. Um, what do you see as a, one of the weaknesses for this team? I, I said, I think, in certain lineups, the shooting, but what else pops out to you? Yeah, I mean, you said it, the shooting, um, you know, the offensive creation, question mark, you know, beyond Kimba. You know, I think that's obviously a, a big time concern. And then it's not necessarily a weakness, but it's a, it's a, a <laughs> perceived nightmare is that if this Dwight experiment goes wrong early in the season, um, you know, and he injects a little bit of turmoil into a locker room that has been, you know, a, a really a great one. One of the best, I would say, yeah. in the NBA under Steve Clifford. Uh, it's a big risk the Hornets took uh, by trading for Dwight. And I think it's obvious they won the trade. I mean, they, they didn't give up anything to get him, but – um, and got well, off one of the worst exactly, contracts in the got, league. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. the, the big risk was taking on Plumlee, which is one of the more insane trades, but maybe not because apparently they're able to get, to get rid of him and, and get Dwight. And then MKG's, or, or I'm sorry, uh, Michael Carter-Williams is another guy who's not known as uh, a great locker room guy, but hopefully he'll be playing a limited enough role and coming in and, you know, on, on a small contract to where he's not going to be a big enough piece where he's going to mess things up. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I am somewhat optimistic about this Dwight um, experiment. And I'm actually going to turn the tables and ask you a question. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, Dwight Howard uh, redemption um, <laughs> PR this offseason. Um, I mean, I obviously wouldn't buy into any of that. But how do you think this Dwight experiment is actually going to go in Charlotte? I mean, does it seem like somewhat of a fit to you? Oh, it seems like a, a great fit. I mean, we mentioned schematically how it works. Clifford has the relationship with him from back in Orlando. As always, I think it really, the people let, love to talk about, oh, Dwight, like, he's not playing well, it's because he's an asshole, it's because of his character, it's because, you know, he's just not a team player. I think when someone isn't playing well, you always get to look at health first, and really, if you watched him in that series against Washington last year, he was just completely immobile, and I thought he was much better earlier in the year. I saw him play at Golden State in November, and he was outstanding. He really was causing problems for even that Warriors team at the basket. So where, what's the level of mobility that he's going to be able to have? I think that's going to be the key question. He's got his chronic back issues, knee issues, 
And so are they going to be able to kind of keep him supple and mobile, or is he going to be like super stiff and just not ever able to leave the paint defensively, not able to slide his feet? So that's the big variable to me more than the personality stuff. But I do think that they're putting him in a great situation to succeed defensively, and I think he can still be effective defensively. I think offensively now, due to the lack of explosion that he has, if they're going to try and post him up, that's obviously not going to work. He may be at the point where he's a below-average offensive center now here, but I think this team, I am very optimistic about their defense. So I, I, I thought it was a good move. They got off of some bad money with Plumlee, a, a good risk, and uh, I, I think it's, it's going to go well. I mean, it's not going to be like, hey, he's going to make the all-star team, but I think he's going to help them. Yeah, and, and kind of like to our point about the offense earlier, we were talking about, you know, what the ceiling you know, for it is, if Dwight Howard, I mean, he's coming into an offensive system that lives and dies off pick and roll plays. And I mean, if if he buys in to like sprinting to set screens, setting effective screens, he can learn from Cody Zeller. He's one of the best in the league. And then sprinting to the rim. If he literally just does those three things at a consistent basis, we're assuming healthier. I think the Hornets offense can only get better you know because he is going to induce a lot of anxiety for weak side defense anxiety that you're not going to get from a Cody Zeller rolling to the rim right and I so I think that very simple concept could do wonders for this offense now of course that's contingent on Dwight doing those three things sprint yeah, to well, it set the screen also it's held again right like can he yeah, actually right. still get up and finish an alley-oop because if it's not an alley-oop and they throw it to him they're just going to follow him and then you know he'll make one out of two if you're lucky so yeah it's really a question of whether he still has the bounce to get up and go get some alley-oops and so i think a lot of it comes down to his age and his health yeah absolutely you know but but just being able to make the defense work um harder than they've had to work against the hornets especially last season i mean guarding the hornets was was, was very very easy i mean it was stopping one guy to, to your point earlier too about it is kind of hard to imagine how they finished in the top half of the league in offense but um but yeah if, if he can just make the defense work harder from his hard roles uh from setting the picks i think it could do wonders for the hornets and just being able to see that ball switch uh floors easier um could be great so we will see uh it's fascinating though well uh we don't need to find out because you're about to give us your uh, infallible prediction for uh, <laughs> the Hornets' record. We're not, we're not even going to need to watch the season after this once we, once we give our prediction. So uh, I will go first this year. Uh, let me just go back and make sure I'm not contradicting myself real quickly here. Yeah, if, if I'm 13 games off of my prediction like I was last year, then then go ahead and turn off the, the podcast at this point. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's not going to help you at all. You'll have to watch the season then. <laughs> yeah, so the over-under for the Hornets was 42.5. I think this team is going to get to 44 wins. That's going to be my prediction. That's exactly what I have, 44 and 38. So, um, you know, I'm trying to be more modest again than I was last season. But, yeah, I have 44 as well. So that was boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, and I think most of that improvement is going to come on the defensive end. I agree with you. I think this team could be a top-five defense. Uh, they avoid making mistakes. I mean, that's a big part of why they can be somewhat effective offensively, even if they don't have a ton of talent. They just don't turn the ball over. Uh, so, and they win the possession game defensively with the defensive bounce. And I, I think that, you know, maybe this team will be the 17th best offense and the ninth best or something like that. And that's how you get to it. Sure. Yeah, yeah I, I could see that. And in terms of like a prediction for offense and defense, I, I'm going to peg this team uh, as the eighth best defense. And I think they're going to be the 12th best offense. So 
I, and I don't know. That, well, I, that, that, I, if, yeah. if that's true, that I mean, if, if you think that's going to happen now, I mean, you never know. Like those rankings aren't like necessarily linear, but uh, I think if that actually is true, I'd see them getting them more. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that basically is the equivalent of what they did two years ago, or close to it, where they were a top ten defense and a top ten offense, and they won forty eight games, right? So um, it, it would be a little bit better than forty four, probably. Um, but I think in 2015, 16, I think they were like the fifth or sixth best defense. So they were just really good on the defensive end that year, which probably helped them get to 40, 48. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, th- I think they can average being when you put the offensive and defensive efficiencies together, I think that number should come out somewhere at like 10. So, um, I think that's very doable for this team. Yeah. I mean, if you look at their starting defensive front court, I think it's one of the best in the league, you know, with MKG, Williams, and Bright, and then you've got Zeller coming in off the bench. You mentioned that Zeller-Kaminsky combo has been effective. Uh, you know, maybe off the bench, they won't quite defensively. Uh, what do you see as, like, the best-case scenario? It sounds like you really have already kind of articulated it. I mean, I think they could get to maybe 48, 49, something like that. Yeah, I wrote down 50 wins. I mean, you know, I think if, like, the Dwight Howard experiment goes well, he's mobile, he stays healthy. You know, if Kimba stays healthy, um, doesn't take a step back to his phenomenal year from last year, Batum finds, you know, that second creator ability again, shoots the ball better. You know, Marvin and Frank shoot the ball better, which seems like they should. Uh, and then the depth of this team um, that on paper that it looks like it has ends up paying off. Like, I think there's a – I think there is a way to 50 wins for Charlotte. Uh Worst case scenario, I would say, you know, we're not going to say that Kemba Walker gets hurt and misses a ton of time, but, you know, if he misses 15 games, you have to imagine that they will have a without Cody Zeller-like record in those 15 games the way they did last year in their 3-17 without him. Uh, so I would say that when they won 36 last year, it's quite positive. Now, that was somewhat unlucky due to point differential. I don't see them being much worse than that. I would say 35 wins uh, would be their downside scenario. Maybe a little too rosy just because they've shown that once they're out of the playoffs, they really like to tank. Yeah, I wrote down 33. And I mean, I think worst case scenario for them is Kimball Walker getting hurt. Uh, and if that were to happen and, you know, he it missed extended uh, period of time, then I think, you know, the – the seat, the floor can get really, really low for this team. Um, you know, as with the offense end up being stuck in the mud, you know, with Dwight Howard trying to plug him in, you know, Marvin ages out. Uh, Frank Kaminsky continues to be an overrated shooter. Like, yes, there's a way you get to the low thirties, I think for this team. All right, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, where can people keep up with your work uh, on Twitter? If you are a uh, Hornets fan and you want to actually learn everything that's happening with the team instead of me, because I've missed like two news items. <laughs> um, yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter uh, at QCH uh, Spencer and yeah, visit QueenCityHoops.com uh, and listen to BuzzBeat Radio if you want more on the Hornets. And appreciate you having me, man. This is always fun. You guys do a yeah, great absolutely. job. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and, uh, and you do as well. That's why we love, love having you on. Uh, and uh, as for us, uh, we'll be back later in the week with more. I'm not sure what we're going to do yet. It might be season preview, might be uh, something a little different, but we will let you know on that one. Talk to y'all next time. Thanks again. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.